T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. DGB Nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. With me on the show tonight is my regular co-host, John Berger. How are you doing, sir? Hello, hello, hello. Oh, I think I'm going to do the entire podcast talking like this, eh? That's entirely up to you, but I think you might do your throat, throat in <laughs> doing that. <laughs> hey, come on, look, look, right, I'm a Yankee, I understand, mate, but at least this is nowhere near as bad as Dick Van Dyke's and Mary Poppins, eh? Cool, <laughs> blimey, Mary Poppins. <laughs> I'm a Yankee, and even I was saying, that ain't no bloody Cockney accent, mate. <laughs> yeah, That's saying something if a Yankee's going to say that. Mind you, it's it's nearly as bad as, um, what was it in Snatch? Brad Pitt's Irish accent. That was atrocious. Hey, look, so what's a heck of two roof lights? Uh, the status house frame furniture. And uh, scar her cushions with uh, matching shack by cover. Have I made myself clear, about? Yeah, that's perfectly clear, Mickey, yeah. Just give me one minute to confer with my colleague. Did you understand a single word of what he just said? Irish is just tough for... You know what? Anything not American is kind of tough for Americans. Let's just leave it at that. I'll tell you what. what is the, the hardest accent for um, English people... Uh, and that's a Welsh accent because it ends up sounding like you're from New Delhi or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very easy to, to to get a fusion into sort of like uh, what we would call Asian uh, territory. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I I try to be careful with my Cockney because it ends up a little bit sounding Australian, and then you have to roll it in, you reel it back in. It's like, no, no, that's Australian. Bring it back, bring it back. I. Uh, but, get accused yeah. of being Australian actually when I'm when I'm in America <laughs> see I'm, I'm so used to to having friends in England and watching so many English shows and so forth I can tell I can even tell oh, that person's from the north of England <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can hear the, the regional dialects and know where they're from I, I, oh, I really I the these people that say oh that's an English accent I really want to be with them when I meet someone from Liverpool <laughs> I love having fun with that. You know, someone say that, you know, that, that person's speaking an English accent. I'll just look at them flat out and say, well, which accent? There are several accents. There, there are several accents in England. And then they're just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Blows their minds. It's like, yeah, there are multiple accents. Thank you. Right. Since our last show, uh, we've added some new sections to the TGP nominal website in the shape of our honorary crew members and Project V3 pages. Uh, the Honorary Crew Members page is dedicated to special guests that feature on the podcast, and the Project V3 page is a journal of the construction of my Eagle Moss Vector 3, or V3, 3D printer. Um, I, I know you've had a look at the page for that one, John. It's coming along. <laughs> slowly uh, yeah, you know but at least i've got the. So this is what episode four or five now so you know we're, we'll, we'll get there yeah i mean at least i've got the y axis um, motor running <laughs> on it now <laughs> i was really um stoked really when i uh 
plugged that in for the first time and it didn't go bang yeah <laughs> i was really chuffed with that um so um yeah it's i've got a few more parts now and so i've got the stage two to start putting together and uh, we shall see how it uh, ventures on Right, I think uh, we'd better get this show on the road now uh, with some some news stories. What do you think, John? Oh, sure, why not? This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Well, since our last show, it's been a busy time for the space travel industry. Um, so I thought it, I had better keep you up to date with what's been going on. Now, a Falcon 9 rocket carrying a Dragon V1.1 capsule for the latest resupply mission to the ISS launched on the 14th of April at uh, 2010 and 41 seconds UTC. Uh, The Dragon was filled with more than 4,300 pounds of supplies and payloads, including critical materials to directly support about 40 of, the, of more than 250 science and research investigations that will uh, occur during expeditions 43 and 44. As far as the primary mission objectives go, everything went by the book for the first part of the CRS-6 mission. After the separation of the second stage, SpaceX conducted a flight test and an attempt to return the nearly empty first stage of the Falcon 9 through the atmosphere or try to get it to land on the SpaceX's uh, 300 foot by 160 foot landing platform vessel called Just Read the Instructions sporting the SpaceX's logo (laughs) as a target for the landing legs of the core stage. The first stage made its best landing attempt to date, but was unable to remain upright after hitting the deck with too much lateral velocity and tipped over and was destroyed. Elon Musk later explained that the bi-propellant valve was stuck and therefore the control system couldn't react rapidly enough for a successful landing. Another attempt will be made during the CRS-7 launch, which is scheduled to launch on the 19th of June. It was a pretty good one, though, wasn't it, John? You could see that it was—it just about had it, and then the bottom suddenly just swung out. You—you you could see the like, oh, um, so close. The the correcting uh, jets at the top of the mm-hmm. uh, the rocket were trying to compensate for it, and they it tried. just wouldn't happen. But and I mean, really, it, it did land too. It did it did successfully land. Oh, but then yeah. it's just like center of gravity is not good. I'm going over. Boom. But there's some fantastic photographs and and film footage of it actually landing. And so oh, let's just say that you know, third time to charm, really. Uh, yeah, I'm but, sure. From what I understand, their engineers have already said yes. We know exactly what happened. It will be fixed. The next time will work. Let's hope so. So as I say, it's it's um, scheduled to launch on the 19th of June. That could change depending on different scenarios and things. And obviously, mm. if it tries to launch on the 19th and the weather conditions yep. or the range is wrong because some idiot's on a boat uh, <laughs> somewhere, um, <laughs> then that may be scrubbed till the next day or whatever. So we just got to keep our fingers crossed and um, yeah, hopefully it will happen. They'll get it. They'll get it. Did you see that there's a uh, Twitter account out there for the barge that the thing lands on? No, I didn't see that. And it was funny because after the after this last one failed, 
the sp- the statement from that barge was, "Sorry, guys, I sneezed." <laughs> <laughs> but the the reason why I think we've mentioned it before, the reason why they it, it's called just reading instructions. It's the it's the name of a uh, a spaceship in one of uh, Ian Banks's um, sci-fi novels. I'm trying to remember what the other one's called, what they're going to use on the West Coast. Um, I think it's something like P.S. I Love You, or something like that, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Rather strange names for ships, but um, it gets yeah. people talking, doesn't it? <laughs> it's just a name. I'm just having some fun with it. Yeah, this is what it's all about all the time. I mean, um, the the names of SpaceX's stuff, I mean, you've got the, the Falcon 9 named after the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dragon is named after Puff the Magic Dragon, actually. Song, Seriously? Yes, the, the song by Peter, Paul and Mary, yeah. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all know what that's all about. <laughs> So the next event on the the list is Progress M27M. Now, Mm -hmm. the the six crew members uh, aboard the International Space Station will have to go without a scheduled uh, delivery of food, supplies and fuel. NASA and the Russian space agency uh, Roscosmos confirmed that the Progress M27M spacecraft, which span out of control on the 29th of April... Uh, after reaching orbit, wasn't going to dock with the space station. I think it was some kind of emergency that happened while the spacecraft was separating from the rocket, said Igor Kormorov, the head of Roscosmos, um, the Russian space agency, speaking through an interpreter. Something tells me that's not quite what he said, but that was... (laughs) (laughs) I thought they just said flat out that some of their thrusters and so forth just didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, later, a statement said the problem began uh, 1.5 seconds before the progress was due to separate from the third stage of the Soyuz rocket when f- flight controllers lost telemetry uh, with the launch vehicle. Live video from the progress showed that it was spinning in Earth orbit. That was that was almost like the escape pod in Star Wars, wasn't it? Yeah. It was spinning around. Kormorov said the spacecraft was completing a full revolution every four or five seconds. The Progress was carrying uh, 1,940 pounds of propellant, 110 pounds of oxygen, 926 pounds of water, and 3,128 pounds of spare parts, supplies, and scientific Mm -hmm. experiments hardware, uh, said NASA. A UK newspaper, the Daily Express, reported that British scientists predicted that the unmanned spacecraft would land near London... Uh, where the Thames estuary meets the North Sea between Kent and Essex. Oh, uh, that could be a problem. <laughs> there was also a possibility of a spectacular display over the capital's skies as the ship burns up into a fireball during its crash landing. However, on the 8th of May at around 10pm Eastern or 3am UK time, it re-entered the atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean, which is nowhere near the North Sea. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, when, when you have a satellite that's out of control, you can only take your best guess. Yeah, progress is designed to break up in orbit, but some of the larger parts of the craft, such as the docking mechanism or the fuel tanks, could survive re-entry. We didn't actually hear a lot about that. Actually, what, what no, actually not really. made it through? Because it was a, an uncontrolled re-entry, no one knew exactly where it would occur because of the larger than usual mass of the spacecraft. There was some speculation about whether the 
a populated area would be peppered with um, debris. Suffice to say that the odds of being hit by falling space debris are are very low indeed. Much larger (laughs) craft than Progress have uncontrollably re-entered the atmosphere before now. In fact, NASA's 85-tonne Skylab is the most prominent example, and yet Mm. there are no known cases of anyone here on Earth being hit by human-created space debris. Did you know that there are companies that actually sell insurance on that? I can believe that. You can actually buy insurance on on space debris hitting you. Wow. I bet they make a fortune on that. Because it isn't going to happen. There has only been one known case of someone being struck by space debris of any variety. Um, in 1954, Anne Hodges was hit on the thigh by a meteorite while she napped on her couch, leaving a pineapple-shaped bruise. The incident has put further launches to the station on hold, pending the results of an investigation into the failure. This also means that uh, NASA's Terry Verts, ESA's astronauts um, Samantha Christofferetti and Russian cosmonaut uh, Anton Shkaplerov had their stay on the ISS extended. Um, Mm -hmm. They were due to return to Earth on the 12th of May, but now it's been rescheduled for early June. The six astronauts living and working on the orbital complex have enough supplies to last them for many weeks regardless of the Mm -hmm. loss, so their well-being is unaffected by the change of schedule. The exact date has not been established and will be announced in the coming weeks. Now, obviously, with the CRS-7 scheduled for the 19th of June, that'll ease it a little bit. just means at the moment they've got to ration their food and everything um but they can easily survive yeah i mean they they always account for this sort of thing when they're sending supplies up and they have to it means they can get a bit more work done that they were Mm -hmm. wanting to get done before they left um yeah otherwise they would have had to have left instructions for the next crew members and so on and so forth but it means they can complete it themselves which is kind of good really in a way On the 29th of April, Blue Origin, a company owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, conducted a test flight of its new Shepard suborbital system from their test site in West Texas. Aimed at the space tourism market, you wouldn't expect it to be for anything else really, the, <laughs> the, the BE-3 engine-driven rocket lofted its capsule to Mach 3 and its planned test altitude of 307,000 feet. Uh, Attempts to recover the booster, which was designed to be reusable, were unsuccessful, although tweaks to the hydraulic system are already planned for the next test flights. Now, that sounds um, similar to something else, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. (laughs) The the BE-3 engine is designed to mirror the goals of SpaceX's Merlin 1D engine, with the role of launching uphill before conducting a a propulsive return, enabling the commercially attractive aspiration of reuse on future missions. The BE-3 has undergone large amounts of testing, including runs on the E-1 stand at NASA's Stennis Space Center. We flew the first developmental test flight of our new Shepard space vehicle, our 110,000-pound thrust liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen b3 engine 
uh, which worked flawlessly, powering the new Shepard through Mach 3 to its planned test altitude, noted Mr Bezos via a press release. Guidance, navigation and control was nominal throughout the flight. The in-space separation of the crew capsule from the propulsion module was perfect. Any astronauts, if they were on board, it was unmanned, uh, would have had a very nice journey into space and a smooth return. If New Shepard had been a traditional expendable vehicle, this would have been a flawless test flight, added Mr Bezos. Of course, one of our goals is reusability, and unfortunately we didn't get to recover uh, the propulsion module because we lost pressure in our hydraulic system on descent. Okay, yeah, it was technically a failure, but whatever, it's, it's going to end up being a win. Between SpaceX and what he's doing, they're going to get an, a reusable unit any at any time now. It's a, it's a strange-looking craft as well. Yeah, that is weird. Very nice videos they put up for it, though. Mm-hmm. Very well uh, professionally put together. It wasn't just the flight. It's got music with it, and it's almost like a trailer for a movie. It's uh, It was really, really nicely put together. But the launch itself, it was quite a spectacular thing to watch. Once mm-hmm. again, because it's something we haven't seen before. It is a funny-looking ship. You know, but if, if they've decided that's what they need to have for whatever kind of aerodynamics they're going to go for, then okay. <laughs> it, it works, so yeah. It works. <laughs> SpaceX launched a major test on the 6th of May for the innovative uh, rocket escape system for its manned Dragon spaceship, a critical system designed to save astronauts in a launch emergency. It was over in less than two minutes with a video of the Dragon crew capsule soaring skyward uh, from a pad at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, then arcing out over towards the Atlantic Ocean and floating back to Earth under its parachutes. Mm -hmm. By all accounts, the uh, test flight appears to have been a success. It was a great outcome, SpaceX founder and CEO Elon Musk told reporters in a post-launch teleconference. The important thing is that if there had been people on board, they would have been in great shape. The Dragon was expected to reach an altitude of nearly 5,000 feet under the power of its eight Super Draco launch abort engines, which are built directly into the side of the capsule. What SpaceX is doing is certainly unique, said John Coat, NASA's commercial crew program manager. It's definitely Mm -hmm. a revolutionary in that regard. Um, Nearly 270 sensors recorded data during the test flight which blasted off at 9am eastern spacex placed a human-shaped dummy in one of the dragon seven seats to measure how the uh, abort test which was expected to pull up 4.5 g's how that would have affected a real astronaut mm-hmm. it went from naught to 100 miles per hour in 1.2 seconds yeah <laughs> that's pretty zippy um elon musk said <laughs> no really um which peaked at a maximum speed of 345 miles per hour the dummy appeared to have fared well during the, the brief flight he added the the revolutionary part of space X's uh, abort system is twofold first there is the side mounted location of the super dracos which as i say is is completely different to anything else the second innovation is that all of the super draco engines are 3d printed that is the amazing one that's very cool it's a special alloy that they've created for Mm -hmm. these engines and the first time i actually saw that um you know when they launched the um the dragon version 2 
capsule. Mm -hmm. um, they had a, a big press release and everything. Elon was there actually showing these engines and showing the casts for them and everything. And I was just blown away at the fact that they were 3D printed because you know how passionate I am about 3D printing. I should send a link to you. It's a th This was a 3D printer by definition, but what it did was it made basically solid steel units because they would use th this kind of a metal powder yep. and then they would fuse it with a high power laser. Um, I think I might and have seen by, something like that. Yeah. And then by doing all of that, they could basically 3D stuff out of steel. Yeah, pretty amazing. I was reading something today actually uh, about, um, I don't know what had happened to this turtle's jaw, but its jaw got broken um, mm -hmm. and they 3D printed a titanium jaw for this turtle. Mm -hmm. It, I thought to myself, it sounds like some, some kind of um, baddie from a James Bond movie, you know, like Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be um, another talking about uh, 3D printing just entire cars. And then just, you know, plug in the engine and so forth afterward, and just at least for the, the body and so forth, just 3D printing everything. It is pretty amazing what they can do now, because you can pretty much 3D print in any material whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, the Curiosity rover sent out some uh, images last week from Mars. Did you see the blue Martian sunset? I did. Was that amazing? Yeah. And they said that's that's not that's the actual regular unfiltered color view, and it was a blue sunset. Well, it is quite alien. There is no other way to, to it put is, it. But apparently, the the dust was so fine that it was enough to just allow blue wavelengths to come through it. It's just amazing when you think of that about how the planet's considered to be a red planet, and then mm -hmm. to see this gorgeous blue sunset, I was like, "That is amazing." Yeah, it's difficult to comprehend. At first, I saw the picture without actually reading the, any of the text that was along with it, mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was one of these filtered, uh, yeah, the, the false color or whatever. Yeah. Um, then I read into it, and then it just completely blew my mind. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> See, every every couple of days we are learning something new about what's going on out there. It just makes everything exciting. Well, one of the, the defense industries have said that they want to send an inflatable airplane to, I think, Venus. You know, the inflatable will keep it aloft and so forth, but it will basically fly through the atmosphere to gather data, like, uh, like, like a regular airplane. Northrop Grumman, I knew it was one of the big defense contractors. Oh, right. Yeah, a robotic airship to fly through Venus, the, the skies of Venus, for up to a year. It sounds like these guys are playing again, because it sounds like another drone... <laughs> That's oh, yeah, basically. Well, well, when you think about it, really, that is what it is. It's, it's a <laughs> big robotic airship drone. So, oh, yeah, I never even thought of it from that perspective. I guess that does kind of fit in with what they're doing. <laughs> it's a, a Venus Goodyear blimp. <laughs> no, I mean, to look at it, it, they're making it look like an airplane. Oh, right. Trident wings and everything. Oh, wow. We've had some news about the Jupiter Mining Corporation ship, the Red Dwarf. UK TV's leading entertainment channel, Dave, uh, has announced that it has greenlit two new series of the Emmy Award-winning <laughs> comedy series. The Red Dwarf Series 11 and Red Dwarf Series 12 begin production in the autumn before airing on Dave in 2016 and 2017. Do you guys really have a channel called Dave? Yeah. Dave TV. <laughs> what the? 
and and when when the, the last series of uh, Red Dwarf went out on it, they changed the channel name to Dave Lister, which is one of the characters in Red Dwarf. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it's called Dave as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I know of you know all the BBC channels, ITV, Channel Five, all that, but I've never heard of Dave. Dave TV is um, it's a spin-off of a, a TV channel here we've got called UK Gold, which plays a lot of the old um, sitcoms and stuff like that on there, all nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, that kind of stuff. Um, and Dave is more they play a lot of. Um, repeats of things like Top Gear <laughs> and uh, QI and uh, programs like that. Um, oh, wow. But they also have their own programming on there, and Red Dwarf is now one of them. Um, huh. The BBC stopped broadcasting it a few years back, and Dave took it on. Um, and Dave has spent a lot of money on there. There's a lot of money in the special effects department in it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what these two new series will be like. As It's been co-produced by Grant Naylor Productions, who are the original company that used to produce it, and Baby Cow Productions. Series 11 and 12 are written and directed by Doug Naylor, the original one of the original writers. The, nice. the series once more reunites Chris Barry as Rimmer, Craig Charles as Lister, Danny John Jules as the Cat, and Robert Llewellyn as Crichton. It's going to be <laughs> brilliant to see that coming back. Um, and in fact, next month, TGP Nominal have been granted access all areas to the inaugural High Wickham Comic Con and one of the guests at the event is none other than Chris Barry from Red Dwarf as well so fingers crossed we'll be able to chat with him during the course of the nice. day and um, we probably won't get much out of him about the uh, about the series but we can ask him how he's feeling about the guys getting back together again because uh, the last series went out in 2012 so it's been a, a bit of a gap yeah, it'd be interesting to hear his take on that. Nice. Uh, I must confess, I never really got into Red Dwarf. I know a lot of people who love it, and <laughs> it's good to hear that they're coming back. It's been uh, it's, it's been going now since. Again. Oh wow, how long has it been going? Nineteen eighty eight, I think, was when it started. Oh yeah. So it's been going for years now. <laughs> As you have probably heard, there's been a lot going on in a galaxy far, far away. Obviously, the big story over the last few weeks has been Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. This year's event was one of the most anticipated due to the December release of Star Wars The Force Awakens. With, oh, yeah. With most news and info on the film being kept secret prior to the event. For the first time, over 30 hours of the event was streamed live via uh -huh. StarWars.com, yep. which was awesome. During the coverage, I even managed to see people I know on there, um, including <laughs> friend of the show Loretta Whitesides, who featured mm -hmm. in our Yuri's Night episode. <laughs> she was there with her kids, and I, I, I was like, ah! It's Loretta. Nice. 
On April the 16th, um, the opening ceremony of the event focused on The Force Awakens and included many of the stars of the up-and-coming film, new and old actors, director J.J. Abrahams, along with producer and president of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy. The opening ceremony was so massive that the queues, or lines, started at (laughs) 6pm the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, dedicated fans mirrored their 1970s predecessors by camping out. Well, it wasn't it was inside, but hey. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> sleeping in the hallway. Yeah, and apparently the floor was cold, so that, that's, they were saying, huh. yeah, it's it's camping out. Um, floor being cold in Anaheim does. I can't sense that at all, really. <laughs> well, well, you know, it was probably just one of those things with um, the air you know, like a tiled floor or something no carpeting or something like, oh, who knows uh, the sense of camaraderie between the fans was incredible but the icing on the cake came in the form of 200 pizzas that Abrahams and Kennedy had ordered to thank the passionate fans and also dropped in along with several actors uh, including Anthony Daniels to visit the crowd over the course of the night now that can only happen at a mm-hmm. Star Wars event oh and by the way it's J.J. Abrams not Abrams Abrahams. Okay. Just wanted to correct you on that before someone else is like, hey, come on. Yeah. Because I can just picture some people screaming at their speakers right now. Because <laughs> I was I actually watched it when it was live streaming. Yeah. And that was just, uh, my mind was blown with that. That was so amazing. Yeah. Um, at the at the end of the panel, as we all know, the audience in the auditorium was shown the second teaser for oh, the yeah. Force Awakens. However, there was a disturbance in the Force, as if, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror because the live stream was cut just before the teaser was aired. Um, luckily. Wait, I was watching it and I didn't have a problem. I saw the teaser. Really? It must have been just in yeah. the UK then because they stopped it. Yeah, maybe. No, <laughs> I, I got to see the whole thing. In fact, I, my wife had just gotten home shortly before then and I called down to her to say if she wanted to, if she wanted to see the new trailer and we sat and watched it as they streamed it. Wow. Um, yeah, they didn't do that in the UK. It, it, cut, to, it, it cut to a still saying um, live coverage will resume uh, huh. later. And I, I saw a, a, on YouTube all these all these people putting comments in saying what what the hell you know? yeah really huh i wonder what happened no yeah because i saw it over here luckily the teaser was made available within minutes of it being shown oh, to yeah. the audience uh with it being viewed on youtube over 80 million times within the first 24 hours and yep. and no that wasn't just me <laughs> <laughs> that was cool to watch though uh, it was, and I, I've got to admit, I kind of cried a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially at the very end. Yeah, you know, Chewy went Solo and Chewy. Nobody, yeah. nobody listening to this podcast could not have seen that trailer by now. So there's no spoilers <laughs> here. Come on, let, let, let's face it. Yeah, definitely. Did you see? There, I forget his name. Uh, Father Gregory, something like that. There's a Roman Catholic priest who is also big time geek. And he does his own Star Wars podcast and all of that. You know, he does podcasts that are all geek and sci-fi related, nothing to do with the church. But he's a Roman Catholic priest, and he did uh, he, he did a video recording himself as he was watching the trailer for the first time. And that is just one of the most 
amazing things to watch because you can see the look in his eyes and the look on his face. It was like a kid at Christmas. Mm-hmm. It was just so funny to watch and to see his reactions, especially if you had the trailer memorized like you and I already do. Because uh, you, yeah. you know what parts he's talking about. <laughs> and just to see, he even got so excited that here's a Roman Catholic priest saying, oh my God. Because he just was like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> he was just so overwhelmed. It's so funny to watch. I'm going to send you the link to that. Crossing himself at the same time just in case he gets in trouble. Uh, well, you know, um, <laughs> all things considered, I'm, I'm sure that if there was any concern about uh, blasphemy, that that would just get swept under the rug considering just the emotion of the moment. But it was just, it's funny to watch and to see. It's like a kid on Christmas. But even um, Mark Hamill, he did a kind of a panel thing that... Um, the, you know questions and answers thing and he was even making fun of it himself by saying you know uh, my father has it my sister has it uh, yeah. my accountant has it and the guy who's <laughs> down the road who smells a bit funny has it but uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> But this is one thing I love about Star uh, Star Wars is they're not afraid to make fun of things. Um, yeah. Uh, and the one thing that, that Mark Hamill said in the the, uh, the initial panel is that, you know, you're not just fans, you are family. Yeah. And at that moment, you felt it. You really did feel mm-hmm. it. But the one thing I'm surprised you didn't mention about all of this was the fact that BB-8, that little ball droid, is real. Yeah. Um, He's um, not CGI. This was, well, I mean, we, we've spoken about this on Twitter. <laughs> we, we, yeah. uh, as soon as it was um, out there, we were uh, like the rest of the globe, I'd imagine, um, talking about it. And yeah, I, I must admit, I, I my eyes were welling up at that point as well. Um, yeah. Well, you, you should, well, they're going to well up even more because uh, they've already announced that they're going to become a toy, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, yeah, there is a list, although it's very, very vague, of the well, um, the Hasbro um, list of toys that they're going to be releasing. There's a list of about, um, there's, there's over a hundred different things coming out. <laughs> well, this isn't Hasbro. This is... That, that BB-8 was actually based on a remote control ball toy that you could actually handle, you, you control it with your phone. I've and seen that, yeah. I can't remember the name, Spheros, I think? Yeah, I think, I think it's it Spheros. Is. And they worked with Lucasfilm to put BB-8 together. And so they're the ones who, it seems, are going to be releasing the toy. Oh, right. And, oh boy, did I get my, ad- I put my email address on that list really quickly. <laughs> the, the whole event, the, the streaming really made the event for everyone outside uh-huh. of, of what was going on i actually took a shine to one of the hosts um who is the um the starwars.com social media correspondent uh andy gutierrez <laughs> she yeah anyway um steady on <laughs> I, I actually watched live as she uh had a tattoo <laughs> done <laughs> while she was there she, she was brave enough to have it filmed <laughs> yeah you know it's just a tattoo <laughs> But it was a Star Wars one. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. It was um, a very arty way of looking at the trench run of the original mm. Death Star. It looked really good when it was finished. So the the following day, fans were treated to uh, the highly anticipated trailer for Star Wars Battlefront, the, the new uh-huh. uh, video game. And, and it had fans cheering throughout the weekend, especially with the promise of downloadable content that bridges the gap between episodes six and seven. The first yep. of which will be scheduled to hit on the first day of December and focuses on the Battle of Jakku, um, mm-hmm. uh, a giant fight that resulted yep. in the crashed Star Destroyer that we see in the teaser. Yep. That, that, 
is an amazing shot, by the way, the, the crashed uh, oh, yeah. uh, Star Destroyer and then the little uh, crashed X-Wing fighter in the mm-hmm. foreground. It's just those little bits and pieces that, which people have been analysing. Um, well, I mean, did you see the one that obviously we, we know from Return of the Jedi that Boba Fett went into the Sarlacc's mouth after he lost control and so forth? Mm-hmm. But it looks like it is now canon, you know, seeing as how they got rid of the extended universe. Yeah, the extended universe. Um, now that they've scrubbed that and said we're starting a whole new canon, it looks like Boba Fett survived after all. Yeah. Because one of the scenes of the trailer from that game is Boba Fett overlooking that Star Destroyer that crashed. So cool to know that like, Boba's around. On the, the third day, the trailer for the second season of Star Wars Rebels made its debut. Mm-hmm. Um, that was quite a good one. Um, I saw the trailer for that, seeing the, the main characters in there fighting against um, Darth Vader, which was awesome. Star Wars Celebration closed out its fourth and final day with fans being shown an exclusive teaser for Star Wars Rogue One, the first of the three anthology films due to release in 2016. Rogue One seems to be a very interesting concept because it's, it's based around the, the guys trying to steal the data tapes for um, yep. f- for the plans of the Death Star, isn't it? Yeah, and, and what's also going to be interesting about it is that the whole thing with the Force and all of that, they're not even talking about that. This is just going to be regular people doing their best to, yeah. to fight the Empire, so there's no Force magic. It's, it's going to be more action-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could say, you know, kind of like, I don't want to say war movie, but that, that's kind it of what they're is. likening it to. So it's going to be more more gritty and hardcore action, which that, that's going to be an interesting take. Also at the closing ceremony of the event, it was announced that uh, the 2016 Star Wars celebration will be held in London. Oh, guess where you're going to be? Yeah, I've already booked my tickets, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hate <I'm>, you. <laughs> I'm also going to be applying for press accreditation in January. Oh, good. That's um, cool. I, I thought, well, I could apply for it and not get it and then I wouldn't have a ticket so I thought I'd better get a ticket first uh, yeah I, I mean now you can always sell it off not well not only I, I'll probably keep it but the fact right. is that well, I mean, if you do get the press accreditation then you'll have a ticket yeah um, of course then again I can also hop in the airplane <clears throat> <laughs> The next part of this is that J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, has some news for Star Wars fans who are expecting numerous references to the original trilogy in the upcoming movie. Yeah. Uh, he told Vanity Fair that there will be hints and references to the earlier movies as well as what ha- oh, yeah. happened in the three-decade gap between the films as the, the new film takes place 30 years after Return of the Jedi, which it has to be really because you couldn't get away with it any other way with the original no, no, you characters couldn't. in there. However, well, not even the characters, but just it's a good way to say, hey, the, the Empire needed to rebuild in some way, and that doesn't happen overnight. No. So, you know, so now, they're, now they're going to be the First Order, and the Rebellion is now the Resistance. However, at one time, there were too many references to the other movies that he had to cut some of them out. <laughs> 
we've obviously had a lot of time during the development process to talk about what's happened outside the borders of the story. So there are, of course, references to things and some are very oblique so that hopefully the audience can infer what the characters are referring to, he said. We used to have more references to things um, and we just wanted it to flow naturally. Yeah. In, in certain cases, you do have to have some references to, to what's going on. Um, oh, just for fan service. Yeah. The one thing that he did say he was thinking of doing, I don't know if he actually did or not, I guess we'll find out when, when the movie comes out, was he was actually going to put the bones of Jar Jar Binks somewhere. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to do what they usually do is they you know there's lots of hidden things in in all the the Lucasfilm type stuff even in Indiana Jones there's references to Star Wars in the Indiana yep. Jones films like Club Obi Wan uh, that was a nice touch but leading on from that is obviously the the Vanity Fair photographs that were in the latest issue uh, we now know that Adam Driver is Kylo Ren. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, there's also photos circulating of him in an X-Wing pilot's outfit. Mm. <laughs> Had he just put that on to walk around and... Uh, so- well, keep in mind, though, I mean, Emperor Palpatine, he wasn't revealed to be a Sith until the very end. This is true. Of, uh, yeah, so he was able to, to hide. You know, when I showed the photo to my other half, she said, yeah, he just looks like a kid that was bullied at school and now he's getting his revenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, maybe. <laughs> And I'm not too sure if I'm getting this name right. It's Lupita Nyong'o. Um, yeah, I've I've never been able to figure that one out either. She's playing a CGI character called mm-hmm. Maz Kanata, who apparently is a pirate yeah. and uh, has got a castle, a bit like Jabba's Palace, I think. And and there was a kind of like a rogues gallery of all the kind of people that frequent the uh, the castle. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd imagine yep. this is where. Um, the likes of Warwick Davis are going to come into the plot, probably, because he never plays a, a massive part, does he, really? Apart from Wicket, of course. Well, yeah. Um, but um, he, he normally plays quite a small role in there, but mm. it's just the fact that he's in the film, he's just happy to be there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's some quite amazing photographs um, in there, and obviously the big one is Gwendolyn Christie. That was mind-blowing. <laughs> Is like just ha- just having a chrome stormtrooper is cool in and of itself, but then to find out that it's going to be a woman kicking ass in that suit, that well, she, was she, just amazing. She's used to walking around in armor anyway, so. Oh yeah, well, and she's also she's she's a brute. She's like six foot three inches. Yeah, something like that. I mean, she I'm I'm tall for a Yankee, and she's higher than me. I was just like, wow. So that that's but just the fact that so you figure now we've got I mean the very first person to be seen involving any of this is a black stormtrooper mm-hmm. and now we've got a woman stormtrooper who's a captain this is awesome and the name though Captain Phasma I'm not too sure yeah, about that <laughs> Phasma sounds kind of hokey You're a bit cheesy isn't it <laughs> but you know. it's like Captain Fantastic <laughs> yeah really. It's like phasma, really? Okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> considering considering how everything else of this movie looks, just 
freaking phenomenal. I can I, let a Captain Phasma hokey name go by. <laughs> I had a uh, not a, an argument recently with um, somebody on a forum. Um, they was talking to me how, how how can a stormtrooper be black when they're all modelled around um, Django Fett? And I went, no. Sixty years ago, <laughs> I, I read you know, somewhere that because of the problems that happened in the Clone Wars, that Darth Vader refused to have clones in his ranks. He wanted to have humans, so they're all completely different. Well, not just that, but then once they became the Empire and they took over different worlds and so forth, there were probably people who just wanted to join it. And people that so, were probably just conscripted. Yeah. So it's like it makes total sense, actually. Yeah, I know. That, that's I, I love hearing those kinds of people with that kind of logic, too. It's like, well, that's the way it was. And then you figure the those movies were 60 years before this one. <laughs> A lot so they're changed. just going to have 60 years of clones? Really? You can see the evolution in... in I, I know a lot of people don't like talking about the prequels. But oh, I, yeah. I know a lot of people that say there's only three films ever been made. <laughs> but, I'm one of them. <laughs> but in the prequels up to leading up to Jedi, you can see the, the evolution of how things have changed. Because if you mm-hmm. look in the original... and uh, in the original, but in the prequels, the styling of things was like pretty much how it was in the 1930s the style very stylish looking things and went up yeah. you go up to a new hope and it's very industrial mm-hmm. and that's pretty much how it was from the 1930s going up to the 1970s yeah. so it kind of works in that respect and, and when i've put that to people in the past they like well i hadn't thought of it like that before <laughs> But it is, so there is a, a, a distinct evolution. And once again, with the new shape Stormtrooper uniform and the, the new shape Snowtroopers, mm-hmm. which were unveiled at, the, at Star Wars celebrations, but when you actually see it in a snow background with uh, Kylo Ren in front, yeah, that really brings it home. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think all of this is all, all these, these changes that people are freaking out about are just really cool. Adds a new dynamic to all of this. Which, as you say, it's 30 years. Of course yeah. there's going to be changes in 30 years. The styling on the X-Wing fighters have changed. Not Actually, a, it's kind not of funny. Greatly. The X-Wings are actually, the way they're using them in this movie, are the way that they were originally designed in the concept art when they were making the original trilogy. Yeah. Um, once again, everybody involved in this new movie, these little throwbacks to Ralph McQuarrie and, mm-hmm. and then that, it's 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 amazing to see, uh, and I just love it. And for proper, proper fanboys and girls, it does put a spark back in your heart, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just the fact that I mean, everything that he is doing screams back to what was originally done to capture everything from the original trilogy. It's being shot on film, not digital. Uh, he's he's made actual sets and costumes for, for hundreds of stormtroopers. So there's going to be not nearly as many CGI, a, a bunch of practical effects as opposed to special effects. It's just, he's you know, everything is just coming back to he's trying to capture what the original trilogy was. Yeah. 
And it, you know, it's just funny to, to see the interviews from people who said that they were literally crying when they walked on the Millennium Falcon set. I can believe that. I, I don't know if you yeah. saw the, the the guy who won the uh, Force for Change competition. Um, no, I didn't see that. Uh, there are videos of him uh, actually visiting the set uh, on uh, on YouTube, <laughs> and they sort of took him through a door frame and. He didn't realise where he was at first, and then he sort of blinked a couple of times, and he's like, I'm on the Falcon. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, he, he's doing so many things right with this, that as far as I'm concerned, right now, the only thing that could kill this movie for me is the story. If the story just isn't there. But, I, you know, it's just, from I, I think I've, that's going to be a long shot. I don't think there's going to be a problem with that at all. I don't think so either. He's too much of a fan to, to spoil this. <laughs> The, the next story is the rumours of Joss Whedon uh, directing um, Star Wars yeah. Anthology 2. Um, I don't know how much I believe that. Because Josh Trank has uh, exited from the project. It always seems to be Latino Review that gets these um, nuggets of, uh, of news. I don't know where they get them from. He's notorious for, for doing his best to not release anything until he gets it confirmed by multiple sources. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, nine times out of ten, I would I, I would I would say that if he leaks something, it's probably genuine. Yeah, but the thing with Josh Trank, he apparently is not the world's greatest uh, person to deal with behind the set. But I mean, that's kind of like Joss Whedon has come out basically and, and said that he had a really tough time dealing with the folks at Marvel, that a lot of things were put into Age of Ultron that he didn't really want in there. He wanted other things in there, but then Marvel would come back and say, yeah, but we want what you want to take out. So if you want the part you want, you better keep that other part in that you want to take out because we want it in there. This it, sounds... it just seems that there was a lot of that kind of tussling going back and forth. And uh, unless he's got a better relationship with Kathleen Kennedy, because let's face it, Marvel and Lucasfilm are still owned by Disney. Yeah. So it depends on where d- did he get this pressure from Marvel or did he get this pressure from Disney? Disney? Mm. And if he got it from Disney, I can't see that he would want to do another movie for Disney so soon after having such a bad experience with Age of Ultron. So that one, eh, I mean, it might be that he's being courted by Disney for it, but whether he's actually going to do it or not, that's debatable. He was glad to be done with Age of Ultron, let's put it that way. From what you've been saying there, it sounds exactly uh, what Edgar Wright was saying about when he was in the director chair for Ant-Man. There were certain things that he wanted, but they didn't want. He didn't want it to have any connection with the rest of the the Marvel extended universe. Right. But they said, you've got to have these bits and pieces added in. And he wasn't happy about it, so he left. And I think if Edgar Wright had done directed I, I'm, I'm not going to pass judgment on it until I've seen it but I, sure it would have been actually a cool. have, you, have, you, have you seen the new trailer for it um, it I actually have, looks pretty darn good yeah I've seen seen that yeah it's, it does look pretty good but I think it would have been a completely different beast if, if Edgar Wright would have been at the helm yeah so and again that comes down to was that from just Marvel or was that from above Marvel yeah and it's hard to tell, but he he may have a completely different experience over in the Lucasfilm division. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But until we actually get something solid, I'm going to lean a little bit more toward he's probably not going to do that. I mean, leading back to, to what you were saying about Star Wars Battlefront, where there's a, a bit there with um, Boba Fett 
overlooking what was going on mm-hmm. there. I mean, the, the rumours are there again that the second anthology film will be a Boba Fett movie, which would make sense. I mean, he, he, even though he's a you know bounty hunter, he is still a favorite character of mm. the fan base. So that would actually make sense. Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. I must admit. Man of very Although few really, words. I mean, it, it can't be an origin story because we already know his origin story from the prequels. Yeah, but we don't so, know. We don't know what happened in between when his right. dad got killed, and um, from there, um, how, how he became the, the character that he is. Um, I mean, there's lots of story backstories in the in the the old um, extended universe, which obviously they won't go down that route. But um, well, they can't now. Uh, but we know what the Mandalorian people stood for and everything, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, they are a tough breed of people. So it w- it's going to be interesting to see how they portray that in, in, in a movie, if that's where it's going. I mean, at the moment, right. that's just rumours. Considering how, how much people like him, I wouldn't be surprised if they do something with him. And if, if they actually do come out, there's, there's rumour and speculation on this one, but... It was Ars Technica last year had an article about why this would be so easy for Disney to do is restoring and releasing the original trilogy unedited as it was originally shown in theaters, releasing that on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, oh, they will make so much money if they do that. Um, and the thing is, something I think they estimated that 90% of the movie was already remastered because of the special editions or you know what it's come to be now mm-hmm. because they had to remaster it in order to add new elements and so forth to it so it's really only that little 10% that Disney would have to try to restore and you know try to get new newer prints from it because apparently a lot of those have deteriorated yeah but if they can just get that 10% and then release it on Blu-ray just before this new movie comes out Ho ho ho! We're in the money. Well, they're in the money, and I, I will be. I will buy it. I will absolutely buy it. I have got those versions that they brought out on DVD, where you had two discs, one with the uh, special edition and one with the uh-huh. uh, unedited version right. uh, on there. I've actually got the laser discs for those. Wow! I've still I've got the laser discs for those, and I've actually been working on converting them over. You know, and, and upscaling them a little bit, converting them into a 16 by 9 format instead of a, a 4 by 3 you know, that sort of thing. And I've got Star Wars done, I just haven't done the other two. Uh, a friend of mine, I don't know where he got it from, but I'm sure he had a version of Return of the Jedi still with the Revenge of the Jedi um, stuff on it. Ooh, nice. Um, I have no idea where he got it from. <laughs> well, have you ever heard of the Despecialized Edition? Uh, no, I haven't. It, it Nobody knows really for sure who the guy is, but the guy goes by the name of Harmy, mm-hmm. and he does what's called the Despecialized Edition. There's a video on YouTube on what he does. He actually goes, and he uses a bunch of, just a bunch of different sources, whether it's the original Blu-rays, or it's like an 8mm or 16mm print from other countries and so forth, and he has, or he or a group of people, whatever, in, in some place, and I think it's like the, the, the Baltic area, they are such fans, they have assembled as much high-quality material as they could in order to completely remaster all three of the original movies in high def to look exactly like they did in theater. I mean, they're doing color correction, they're mixing sources even within the same frames, 
and they, they've even got a video out there of some of the things that they do like yeah, this this lower section of this one scene like the lower left section of this one scene wasn't a very high quality so they found a 16 millimeter print that was still in good enough quality that they were able to take the section from there and superimpose it over that lower corner so that you get a seamless thing and then they do all the color corrections and so forth but then they include something like 45 different languages in the file you know all of the subtitles and all of that it's it's really is a a total love fest from the fans Absolutely. but it's one of those things where it's like yeah he he offers it for free and disney could give him a cease and desist real fast but they haven't done it as of yet chances are if they release the blu-rays remastered that's he's even said in in his latest email uh that look the the one thing that i want to be able to do is to shut this website down because disney has made these available but if you notice though that with the with the new film a lot the amount of outsourcing that has been done I mean, you look at the guys that are doing the the, the, the new R two unit, the, uh, uh-huh. the the droid dr- uh, domes. Um, you know, they, they they are just members of the uh, the R two builders guild, aren't they? They're yeah, uh, just regular guys, and they've been yeah, brought so they've been, in. They've been ringing the fans in. Yeah, which this is, is amazing. This That's is another awesome. reason why I think this is going to work because it's by the people for the people. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just. I'm really, really hopeful about this one. And if he, if, I don't know if he's going to do eight and nine, but if if he does, or if even if he doesn't, as long as the next directors still have the same kind of attitude and don't go back to the, the CGI laden fest that the prequels were, yeah, I think this is going to be a great trilogy. I mean, the one thing I will say about um, the prequels, uh, well, not so much all of them, but uh, episode three, towards the end, where you're bridging the gap between three and four they used right. much less cgi uh, when you looked at the uh, the rebel cruiser interior which was identical to the ones in in, in the new hope that was r- a really special point for me actually um the, the, that's probably my favorite of the three of those uh, the other two yeah uh, episode, yeah. episode one most definitely mm. um <laughs> yeah um but yeah, episode three. I, I did. I did quite enjoy it. Apart from when uh, the emperor told Vader that his wife had died in childbirth. No, I just didn't believe you. No, I mean you gotta sell it. Remember, your no is what gets you your next job. Now drop and give me twenty. No, better. Now, apart from that, I, I did like it. I mean, I once again, I did actually shed a tear at the point when Anakin started killing the younglings in the uh, the Jedi Temple um, at that point. Well, now, now it's, it's kind of funny because I'm seeing these posts on Facebook where, you know, Obi-Wan hands Luke, you know, this is your father's, you know, uh, uh, this is your father's weapon, a lightsaber, which he used to kill several children. It's mm. <laughs> <That's> like, ow! <laughs> But it was, you know, at that point, you knew that there was no turning back. No. And um, it was then that it really hit me. But, yeah, I, I, try, I try to forget the um, the other two. Uh, they're, they're, yeah. I, I think they, they all had little bits in them that were good. Eh. Um, I mean, honestly, the first one, I didn't mind as much as a lot of people because I knew they were setting... They were planting the seed for the story. Yeah. You're not going to have a ton of action when you're doing that sort of thing. <laughs> I found Jake Lloyd really annoying. Um, 
He was a kid. He was whatever. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, and he is going to be the one that, you know, um, the, the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and Hayden Christensen, I'm sorry, but he's such a wooden actor. <laughs> the, the problem is, from what I've been reading, is that Lucas told him to act that way. That, okay. that That's the way the character was supposed to be. So, no, whether or not that's true, I don't know. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, but you know, yeah, from what I understand, Lucas told him to act that way. Oh, okay. The last piece of um, Star Wars news I've got is that even though the filming for The uh, Force Awakens has long been done, that hasn't stopped details about the various filming locations from continuing to turn up. The latest bit of info comes from the local British news site Cumbria Live. They are reporting that one of the scenes seen in the newest trailer or teaser for Episode 7 was filmed on a local lake in the UK. They claim that it was at nearby Derwent Water and it's lake yeah uh, oh the X-Wing flyover yeah that point there oh okay this is the site where the crew visited to shoot the footage of the the scene used in both trailers where uh, Poe Dameron and his X-Wing fighter uh, wingmates can be seen flying over the water on a still planet the the local newspaper was the first to blow the, the film crew's cover when they spoke to the manager of a local hotel in the nearby town of Barrowdale who confirmed that they had stayed there and had been using a helicopter to film aerial shots of the area. I've got some pictures of the lake and also I'm going to put the picture of the shots of them flying over the lake so that you can see the two comparisons. So there, that'll be brilliant to see. Uh, and again, if this was Lucas, that probably would have been done by CGI. Yeah, to look at this picture of the lake, it, the aerial view that I've got of it, it kind of does look alien-esque. It, there isn't anything there. You know, it's just trees and water. It's in an area called the Lake District. All there is is lakes. Lovely in the summer when the sun's out. You don't want to be anywhere near it when it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible up there. I'm not having a go at the, the Lake District at all. If there's anybody listening from Cumbria, please don't write in and, and have a go at us about it because the Lake District <laughs> is, is a lovely area if the weather is nice. <laughs> so that's that's all we have uh, on, on the news front. We'll be right back after this. into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So I'm in Aylesbury for uh, a very special occasion. It's uh, Dead Universe Comics um, free comic extravaganza and Star Wars Day celebrations and uh, it's proven to be a very popular event today Um, I'm looking a bit worried at the moment because everywhere I look I seem to be being menaced by uh, members of the the Galactic Galactic Empire and uh, I'm feeling a bit uneasy because I'm wearing a Rebel Alliance badge um, which is drawing attention to myself <laughs> and uh, it's a very weird case of events 
Now I'm going to go around and uh, get a little bit of atmosphere for you and uh, hopefully I can uh, bring you some content of uh, what's going on today. I'm here with Mark from peppertop.com, um, which is handy for me, being as I'm Mark as well, so that's really handy for me to remember. Um, so what do you actually do? Uh, basically we do comic strips uh, so together with a friend of mine Vince um, he's the artist although I do some of the artwork and I'm principally the writer uh, we do open source comic strips in the sense that we create them using free software and the majority of our source files we make available online uh, so at our website peppertop.com we've got three comic strips there we've got The Greys which is sci-fi parody right uh, it's all humorous stuff for all of our, our comic strips. So it's sci-fi parody. It's been going six years now, and we've got over 150 strips online. Uh, we've also got Monsters, Inc., which is a comic strip that we ran in our local newspaper, the Bucks Herald. Uh, and then our newest strip is called LV, and that runs every month in Linux Voice magazine. Um, and again, we make the source files available for that. Um, and... Uh, yeah, as I say, all of our comics are available for free download, source files for most of them. With the greys in particular, uh, if you open the source files, there's also Easter eggs in every single one of them. So there's hundreds of Easter eggs to find in total. Yeah. Wow. So. so are online comics becoming more popular these days? Uh, I think they are, but I think it's also a really competitive market. You know, To try and make a mark in it is just incredibly difficult. And there are a few well-known webcomics that make literally millions. And then there's a huge long tail of people like us that make little or nothing but do it just for the fun of it. So. Well, that's the whole point of the, the community, I think, because um, I'm, I have more interest in, in more independent comics um, because I think a lot more heart and soul go into... I know, I know some of the, the big comics are, are really well-drawn, but there's more heart and soul that goes into independent um, comics and, and the artwork and everything that's in there and, I, and, and that's what we're trying to do is promote people like yourself so that you know get the word out there um, and so you get, get guys like you into the big league really <laughs> yeah that would be great but, uh, no I agree with you entirely um, yeah, as I say we've been doing the greys online for six years but actually it's something we've been working on on and off for over 20 years now our first greys strip that we ever created was uh, back in 1994 wow um, so you know you don't keep going with something like that unless you love doing it yeah, it's, it's, we see it as a hobby that, that we enjoy doing if it brings us in a little bit of money and helps us to upgrade our computers from time to time so we can keep producing more and more then, then so be it but uh, we predominantly do it just because we enjoy doing it not, not for the money side of it that said if anyone wants to, to buy any merchandise we're not going to complain so. so basically people just need to go to peppertop.com Yep. And um, is it like, like subscriptions and things like that? Uh, if you go to peppertop.com, um, there's then links from that front page to the, the three comic strips. Um, we do, uh, yeah, we post reasonably regularly, not as regularly as we once did, but every month at least there's a, a new LV strip goes on. And then from time to time, when we get around to finishing them, a new Grey strip goes on. Um, so, yeah, keep visiting the, the site. We are also on Facebook and Twitter, um, and there are links for RSS feeds and things like that on the website as well. Brilliant. So what we'll do also, we'll put a link to you on our um, podcast uh, 
show notes. Yep. So that people can look, look you up on there as well. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for talking with us, Mark. Okay, cheers. I'm here with uh, Matt Rook, who's uh, a comic book artist, and uh, he's actually the artist behind one of the comics that I've recently discovered, uh, Toots Malloy. Now, tell me a little bit uh, about the, the, the comic and um, the other comics that you're involved with. Okay, well, um, Toots Malloy is a noir pulp thriller um, in a world of anthropomorphized animals. He's a marmoset. He plays in a blues band. He's a saxophonist. Uh, but he's also a ninja. All right. <laughs> so he carries, uh, he carries a sword around with him as, as well. <laughs> uh, it's a fun little story. It is quite dark. Um, and there's blood and stuff. Um, and rhinos. Uh, yeah, there, there are definitely rhinos. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes... I haven't read the entire story. Pat's got three parts to it, I think. But essentially, he's uh, he's he's on a mission to reclaim some uh, artifacts for his um, for his ninja clan. Um, so he's going up against Yakuza and uh, and thugs like that. Uh, my other comic here at the moment is um, Apes and Capes. Oh, I co-wrote, but I'm not really credited as the writer. So it's, imagine a an alternate universe where primates um, should should kind of inherit the earth over humans. Oh, right. So they have a higher genetic standing, I suppose, <laughs> than humans do. Well, they should do, yeah. but the humans are kind of oppressing them. Oh, right. um, but it's that's only a really small part of the story. It's a big story, and it's mainly about things like science and genetics and morals I suppose um, but it's it, it's there's a sci-fi edge to it um, and a kind of ecological edge as well so there's a bit of a message in there yeah it's an interesting stance on things to be honest because it does make you think that how things different how different things could be if another you're not exactly right, is it? You, uh, species. Species, yeah. Um, was more prominent over the other. Mm-hmm. Um, There's it, always been something that I've been fascinated with, which is if we've evolved from apes, how come there's still apes? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I know people say that, and I'm... You know, I'm not a scientist. I mean, I've been. Somebody said to me, "Because we are a, a, we are the genetic mutant from the primates, and that's why we are different." Yeah. We, we are a mutant strain. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting perspective. Um, no, I think. I mean, apes. I mean, apes are. Uh, well, we're all apes, but yeah. other primates. I think they're still evolving. We just evolved from a. We all evolved from the same point, I think, and kind of split out. And, mm-hmm. and we just happen to evolve quicker than other apes, I think. I mean, they say that you can tell the difference. About the different apes because of the fact that um, if you gave them, for example, a camera, a gorilla would just smash it. <laughs> a chimp would probably be able to take it apart, but wouldn't be able to put it back together again. And an orangutan could could possibly 
work out how to reassemble it again. Mm. How to use it, maybe? Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> so there are, you know, there are big differences between the yeah. different primates. There are, and it's, yeah. it's really interesting um, to see. And, and when they bring out like the, the different franchises, like the Planet of the Apes and things like that, it does make you think mm-hmm. uh, about these things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that would be a very interesting uh, take on the, the whole primate human yeah. thing. Yeah, and we're big fans of kind of the apes, those kind of movies and those concepts. You know, those, the, what happens? You know, what happens if something changes genetically? And you know, it, it's a bit apocalyptic in a sense for the human race. But if, you, if you're an animal lover, then you kind of. <laughs> It's you know watching Planet of the Apes, you kind of root for the ape, not the human. Yeah, you know. I, I think you do really because I mean we've, we've made a mess of things as it is. You think to yourself, well, maybe they could have made a better, a better go at it really than, <laughs> than we've done. It's so. <laughs> oh, brilliant! So it's, it's it's great to talk with you, Matt. Because, as I say, because um, it's not often I actually get to meet an artist that I've actually read one of the comics that they've actually drawn so uh, yeah and as I say uh, as I say to everybody uh, along this stretch of the tables is is, is always good to um, promote independent uh, people Um, and that's what the podcast is all about is promoting uh, well yes we do talk about the big boys as well but we like to promote the smaller guys to, to get the world well, out there I mean the, this is a good example of how uh, diverse the indie scene is mm-hmm. and, and how talented it is as yeah. well um, yes everybody knows and loves the uh, the franchises and the, the, the big two and all that but if you want creativity if you want interesting ideas mm-hmm. and stories then the indie, the indie scene is the place to be Definitely. Yeah. And, yeah, bring more people to it, please. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to, to, to meet you, Matt. And uh, as I just as I said uh, earlier, I just wish I brought my copy with me that I could want <laughs> to sign it. That would have been awesome. I'm here with uh, Mike Peel from Rogue Creations. What, what exactly is Rogue Creations? Uh, we're a, uh, a film, TV, uh, and media special effects company. Um, so we create uh, makeup effects, prosthetics, masks, props, creatures, uh, puppets, models, miniatures, uh, any, anything 3D or physical that uh, we'd use on, on a film set or theatre so the, uh, the actors can, can interact with as much as possible. So, basically, well, how, how are these things created? Are, are, are they uh, made of, a, for example, a, a, what I'm looking at in front of me right now is a, uh, a drain cover from, from Gotham City. Batman begins, yes. Now, is that, is that kind of a resin or a... Uh, yes, this is, uh, this is a, a fiberglass copy. Uh, or fiberglass material. Um, originally, these would have been a, a soft uh, polyurethane foam, yeah. which we used uh, in the film as uh, stunt props, so that they could be incorporated with the special effects to be blown up into the air without the danger of injuring or hurting any of the actors or the, the cast or the crew.
through there. So for display purposes, it's, it's nice to have a, a resin piece. Right. Now, are they um, 3D printed or...? That these uh, these were all sculpted from hand, um, so the uh, the initial sculpt would have been in, uh, in clay or wet clay. Then take a, a silicon mould of the sculpt, um, and once you've got the silicon mould, you can then choose which material you want the end result uh, to be in. Then. So you prefer to go down the traditional route rather than like 3D printing. You prefer to make a cast and very, very much so. Yeah, I mean the. Um, um, I say I'm, I'm old school. I like starting from, from start to finish. Um, I know that a lot of companies at the moment are embracing the 3D printing um, because of speed, because of efficiency. Um, but uh, I, I still like starting from scratch and sort of putting as much of my sort of skill and, and passion into it as, as possible. And uh, there's a, a few masks uh, here, and um, the detail on them are awesome. Um, so, so what would what be the process to make one of the masks? Uh, what um, what we do is we find out exactly the use for, for the mask or the, or the part from, uh, from the director or, or the writer. Um, and if it was specifically a, a mask or a prosthetic to be worn by a, specific, uh, a certain actor, uh, we start off by getting them into the workshop for a live cast. So either a face or a full head. Um, and once we've, we've got a live cast, we then create a plaster or a resin copy of their face or their head uh, which we then sculpt onto our creation um, so this could it could vary between a couple of weeks work to a month's work depending on the scale of the, the creation of the, uh, the monster or creature that was, that was needed um, so it's it's quite a quite a long process from the sculpt the mould, casting, painting, and then actually turning up on, on set to then fit that to the actor. So we do quite a lot of uh, pullover masks, mm-hmm. so it's literally it can be pulled on by the actor and taken off quite quickly. Um, other uh, other times we do a full face prosthetic, uh, which would be either silicon or gelatin. Um, and some of these can, can take up to two to four hours, depending on the, uh, the detail of, of what's needed. Right. Wow. Hello. So, what, I mean, you mentioned uh, Batman Begins, but what other movies have you been involved with? Um, over, over the years, I've been lucky enough to work um, on... Um, there's some props on Casino Royale. Um, again, props department on uh, Harry Potter, the Phoenix, uh, model made for the Descent, um, part of the effects crew for uh, Evil Aliens. Um, we had a, a great shoot last year working on, on a Predator fan film, um, which is going to be premiered at the, the next London Comic Con um, coming up. Um, so that was, that was Predator versus Knights of the Round Table. Wow. Which was just an absolutely fantastic shoot. Um, and a, a childhood dream to kind of work on, 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 that, sort of, um, on that sort of film. You know, the, the Predator itself is a fantastic design. So to be involved in that as uh, the makeup and the effects department was just so happy. Awesome. So, um, 
Is there a, a website or somewhere where people can actually see some of your work? Yep, yeah. So we're, we're up on the website, Facebook, Twitter, um, and it's uh, www.roadcreationssfx.com. Um, and I said, website's got links to the Facebook page and the Twitter, contact details, and, and uh, what we've done in the past as well. Man. Wow. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Talking to Mike there was really interesting, actually. Um, I'd like to get Mike back on the show sometime because he's been involved in so many different things. But that last thing he was talking about, that fan film, Predator vs. Knights of the Round Table. Uh, okay. <laughs> that could be an interesting film. Um, and as he said, he's, it's going to be released, premiered at the uh, the next London Comic Con, which I've applied for press accreditation for that one as well. And the reason why I've uh, applied for press accreditation is that that is the location that they have this Decided, um, or Universal Pictures have decided to do the cast reunion for the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future. Nice. So Michael J. Fox will be there, Christopher Lloyd will be there. So we've applied for that. I haven't heard anything yet, so fingers crossed <laughs> we can be there for that one. But yeah, Mike, really interesting guy. Everybody there was is really interesting uh, on, on that side of it, on the creation side of things. After the break, uh, we've got some more interviews that we carried out um, during the day. So um, hold tight, and we'll uh, we'll come back in a moment. Joining me now is Dan from the Joker Squad. Now, people might not be 100% familiar with, with what you do. So can you just describe what the Joker Squad is? Absolutely, yeah, thanks. Um, Joker Squad's a Star Wars costume group featuring um, costumes from the Imperial and, and Rebel sides of the Star Wars universe. Uh, we've been going about just over two years now. We started as, as four stormtroopers. Uh, we, we broke away from a, a costume group on our own. Um, we wanted to be an authentic Star Wars-only costume group located in the south of England which there isn't really any presence of at the moment you know after a short space of time uh, our numbers grew uh, the group began to, to grow we established a website a Facebook page a Twitter page Instagram and you know the, the numbers and the, and the attention have been have been starting to grow really really quickly uh, where we focus our efforts is, is charity fundraising um, and we work at the moment with a, a really amazing uh, charity based in Windsor called Alexander Divine and we're helping raise funds for them to uh, establish a children's hospice in the area, so uh, a really you know worthwhile charity for us. But we're you know we're, we're massive fans of the franchise first, um, and then we, we get to put on these amazing costumes, have a great amount of fun, and also raise uh, a truckload of money for a very very worthwhile charity. Wow! So what kind of events have you actually attended? Um, we we go to all of the big comic cons, uh, so Collectomania, London Film and Comic Con, um, at, at Milton Keynes and, and London. Um, we do a lot of uh, yeah, we, we try to get to all the major comic conventions as we can. Um, we do DEF CON down in Southampton, which is, is one that's really sort of gathering pace now, and that's in its third year. Um, we support the guys that feel the force as well, which is also going in its third year this year, yeah. um, and that's that's a really sort of personal favourite of ours, and in fact, if there's any one convention that I love going to, uh, it's definitely that one. 
and the guys that run that uh, JJ and team are, are phenomenal phenomenal people um, but then you know we don't just go for the big showy events we also do a lot of um, community things as well so we go down to sort of school fates and things um, and people seem to find us through the website we receive quite a lot of this particularly this year we've received a, a ton more communication than um, we, we've had in the two years we've been going um, and people are asking us now to attend birthday parties we did a, um, a seven year old birthday party um, back in, in March and uh, two of us went and did uh, some Jedi training which was, was wow. good fun you know that was that was really good fun um, but we, we've been booked for a couple of weddings this year as well and there's, there's a couple of other bits and pieces coming down the pipeline um, and obviously as the movie comes out in December we're expecting more you're going to be busy I think yeah I hope so I hope so absolutely it should be great should be great oh awesome so how can people find out a bit more about you and get in touch yeah abs- um, great question uh, and, thank- and thanks for that cheap uh, cheap plug we're going to do this um, so we have a website at the moment um, which, which people can contact us through or subscribe to a, a newsletter which we're just now going to start getting out um, that's uh, jokersquad.co.uk um, you can contact us by hotmail at jokersquad at hotmail.co.uk um, find us on facebook um, forward slash jokersquad um, and we'll be the Joker Squad SWG which stands for Star Wars Group so a lot of people ask about that um, and the, I mean basically the website has links to all of the social media Facebook Twitter and Instagram um, we have a lot of fun with the Instagram account and um, you know we put some, some silly pictures up there and uh, just really you know Joker Squad is all about having fun and uh, you know people want to have fun the motto is fun charity and Star Wars brilliant that's how it should be really yeah absolutely <laughs> that's, and that's that's what we want to be you know we, we, we take Star Wars seriously but we have a tremendous amount of fun with it as well. well thanks for talking with us Dan yeah thanks a lot so with me I have uh, Brett from Dead Universe Publishing now what are Dead Universe Publishing well, it's a coalition, really, um, of uh, independent comic creators who um, want to try and push the boundaries of what they're doing, so you're not to stick to the same formula you see in the big two publishers, DC and Marvel, and uh, not necessarily having material that would be accepted by any of the smaller independents like uh, Image or, say, RDW, and just deciding to put it out for ourselves, really. So... Take me through some of the, the stuff you've actually released. What, what, what have we got here? Um, on the left here, we've got uh, John Scriven's Little Terrors. Little Terrors, as he described it to me, that his elevator pitch was, it's about the uh, changes you go through as a teenage, uh, as a teenager. Um, but instead of like you know changing, getting hairier, lower voice, you turn into a monster. Say, <laughs> so it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic story with more sort of a, a youth flavour to it, and certainly about the the difficult and coming to terms with growing up and kind of being in a new situation where you have to rely on yourself. And it's a good comedy, it's good drama, and I had fun working with him on the, um, the one-shot um, that we did, specifically as a sort of zero issue, an origins issue. That was good fun. And what else have we got here that you... There's our, well, there's Kaiju, Kaiju Steel here, written by Steve Collier, who's uh, living in New Zealand now, actually, and going off travelling with a Liverpudlian artist called Lee Colleen. Um, it's about a boy who inherits a magical sword that allows him to fight giant kaiju monsters, the Japanese monsters. Yeah. They're invading a city. And while many of those tropes are kind of like well-worn in cinema, the yeah. way they put it together, I think, is um, it's far more successful than a lot of big monster cinema you get now, which 
atmosphere. You're concerned with the big, flashy aspects of it, where this is more focused on the the very human toll that it takes on people. And um, what would you say is your bestseller of, of what you produce? Um, the bestseller that we've probably had here, um, I would say, is probably um, between um, Apes and Capes. Uh, which is uh, Matt and Gromia's um, book, which you know, focuses on, um, you know, described as 2001 from an ape's perspective, almost, in that it's a, it's a science fiction story, isn't it? But, it, you know, it's ostensibly about apes in another kind of, like, it's not an, a post-apocalyptic as in destruction, it's like a return to nature, isn't it? Yeah. But um, dealing with the scientific consequences of maybe mankind after that. And it's totally a different take on the apocalypse, I think. It's, again, something that's well worn in the modern media, but um, putting a different spin on it. And um, I know we've breezed through a few printings of my book, The Veil, which is um, essentially about modern Britain. Like every time we've had a different set of people or uh, people of different backgrounds come in, we've always integrated them. And this is more on the HP Lovecraft bent. So if you had Cthulhu monsters come from another dimension, would in 10 years they've just nicely integrated into British life and that sort of thing, making the fantastical mundane. Um, as Neil Gaiman tells them, tends to do. Strangely, the, the way you're putting that across is that um, with the, how the Americans refer to anyone that is um, settling down in the US who are, who are not an American citizen, classed as an alien. Um, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, there are parallels to draw with that. And I, I feel that um, there's a lot of that going on in the world at the moment with a lot of nationalist tendencies, particularly like the Golden Dawn mm-hmm. in uh, Greece and over here you know, in Britain with UKIP and stuff like that. Um, the reality always is that everyone's the same all over. And you find out you know, in the veil that uh, the monsters are very much like us, just trying to live their lives. And there's forces beyond them that cause any conflict. I kind of like this uh, concept here, actually, where the... Uh, there's a, a queen that is uh, almost reptilian-like, <laughs> and it goes along with a lot of these conspiracy theories out there. Well, that was exactly <laughs> the idea, yeah. Um, you know, if you read down any YouTube comments, there's always something really offensive, like you know, Jews control the media and all this sort of stuff, or you know, the, the royals are lizards underneath the masks, and uh, to just prick a hole in that and show you how ridiculous <laughs> that is, I, didn't, uh, I wanted to put it into a literal scope. You know, what if the queen, the queen really really was a lizard and the Illuminati controlled everything. Uh, it turns out to be, you know, not too more, much more ridiculous yeah. than most political machinations we see in the world today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And what's this, uh, you've got Torso Bear, what's that one? That came out of a conversation, really, with a, a few friends trying to find a way of <laughs> um, coming up with an idea as gritty and as messed up as you could possibly do without resorting to any kind of... Because there's a trend with comics at the moment. Um, Someone was mentioning here today that they wouldn't know how to set up a kid with reading Batman, for example, because it's all written for 40-year-olds. It's all really dark and bloody, and uh, you couldn't get kids into that. So how could you retain that sort of level of uh, danger and consequence without having any of that, you know, um, gore 
or a nastiness to fall back on. You can just make it about toys. It's bloodless. It's um, it's a completely innocent world, but you find ways to kind of like add darkness into that. And we first we uh, the first volume you see here was successfully kickstarted last year. We got second volume that we're kickstarting now. Um, it does seem to have been popular in amongst the the Kickstarter crowd. This is effectively just a pre-ordering system, you know, for people that don't necessarily want to go through the the mainstream comics retail and uh, pre-ordering system that Diamond has set up to try and you know you can get unique books that way. I think in the way that uh, the comics market at the moment doesn't allow to be sold in the mainstream. So it's almost like a an alternate reality of the of the Lego Movie, really. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in that, it probably exists in someone's imagination or a collective imagination somewhere. Um, and whether or not they have any kind of awareness or dim awareness of that is, uh, you know, part of the, the overall plot. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. In fact, when I saw the Lego movie, I was like, oh, no, they've come to the same conclusion. But I think if it's a good idea, sometimes you find people have kind of generally come to it under their own steam. Yeah. They just happen to have, have a nice big movie opening for it. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of lot of the, uh, the different stories. I mean, um, when I was talking to uh, um, Matt there about uh, uh, Toots Malone, it was like I could see that easily crossing over into a movie. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, with the thing with having a blues playing uh, marmoset. Uh, it was just again one of those conversations where you're just coming up with ridiculous ideas like we were saying earlier in our conversation about Red Dwarf being written on the back of a cigarette packet sometimes these best ideas come up to you completely out of the blue just when you're messing about and I think that's where the fun comes from if you understand that it's all just playing then no idea is too ridiculous I'm pretty sure that when uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was having its first printing that Eastman and Laird were getting some real strange looks across that convention table but then it's it's too mad to not work almost as long as you give it a good grounded story with enough adversarial stuff going on and enough characters because it all comes down to the characters no matter how daft it is um, it it will work it's bound to work Awesome. Well, thanks for talking to us, Brett. With me now at the uh, end of the day. <laughs> Very long day. I have uh, Ian from uh, Dead Universe Comics who uh, organised the event today. Um, how'd it go? It was outstanding. A uh, lot of people, a lot of buzz, a um, lot of interest in pretty much everything. So, uh, <laughs> obviously saying goodbye to one shop. It's supposed to be opening another shop. The new shop's not quite ready. Uh, the old shop's still open. So, a lot of confused people, but, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot of conversations. So, um, no news is bad news. And uh <laughs> But it is a kind of a... A new chapter, isn't it, for you? Yeah, we've been three years in the current store and uh, we just signed a five-year contract for the new store, which is more than three times the size. So, uh, interesting times, you know. Uh, comics are on the growth. Uh, everything that's related to comics is on the rise, you know. So, comics are the only form of printed matter that are on the rise, so that's uh, a real bonus. And uh, you, you can tell by the amount of people that are showing an interest today. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy. I'm so tired, it's beyond belief and I'm, I'm running on pretend fuel fumes <laughs> it's been a really interesting day actually I've got to meet some really interesting people and um, you know it's it's what we're here for is to, to promote events like yours yeah. and others around the country and um, 
Yeah, it can only get bigger from here, can't it? Really? Yeah, because obviously this is this is actually our fourth free comic book day um, in this location because we moved in on free comic book day in uh, 2012, 13, 14, 15, um, fourth year incredible and next year we will be putting together a, a genuine comic and sci-fi fair so we'll have some other people come down we'll get some you know people to come down and do sign-ins from film and tv get some comic creators down as well as the comic publishing that we do ourselves and the, the local creators we've got uh, mike peel from uh, rogue who does uh, so, uh, uh, special effects and he's an LSB guy as well so that was really cool i think you must have spoken to yeah, mike spoken today to mike, yeah. um we've got helen who's doing uh, local t-shirt company and obviously that's all uh, comic and sci-fi based uh, mm-hmm. as well as doing our own branded t-shirts which is cool uh, yeah I I I I can't even begin to imagine what we'll be able to achieve next year, but um, it, it will be special because this year was unfortunately hampered by the slow <laughs> receiving of the keys to yep. the new store, which has um, not happened. <laughs> so it's all good. So if you want us there to help you promote and everything, we're, we're there for you. No worries with that at all. Which we appreciate. And um, appreciate you coming down. Yeah, I'm, I've been meaning to come to one of your events for a while now. <laughs> well, we finally did it yeah it always seems to cross over with some other things that I've been involved in so I'm like oh man I thought alright it's coming up for Star Wars Day I've got to get down here so yeah uh, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and we're obviously having the Joker squad here today on their troop and um, I think there was 11 or more people um, who've all come down yeah. with um, you know their Star Wars uh, cosplay looking uh, sensational and yeah, um, yeah. they take it quite seriously not so seriously that it's a you know an issue but That's they it. take it serious enough that they look the part they all looked incredible and I say uh, fair players uh, fair play to them and I had a nice little chat with Dan earlier about what they do yeah and um, he arranged for a group photograph for myself with everybody which was so, impressive yeah <laughs> I could see it but, uh, <laughs> should have come was, and taken um, part but I was too busy serving <laughs> to be honest with you I, Good was, I, was, have. I was holding it in myself because um anything to do with Star Wars and I just get slightly little bit emotional well we're first generation Star Wars freaks aren't we so this you know right. <laughs> <laughs> we were there at the beginning and uh, we might well be there at the end yep and um, looking forward to next year uh, <laughs> yeah. with, uh, you and me both <laughs> you, you signed up no, I haven't. Pat's uh, Pat and his wife have. Um, I'll be uh, I'll be doing you know uh, business related yeah. stuff and uh, probably looking to open a second and third store by that point mm-hmm. um, in different locations. So um, I'll I'll enjoy the experience through them and um, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll get the next rotation. We'll be we'll be there next year. Um, we've booked for the Saturday. Okay, yeah, I think um, they've just done one day as well. And uh, as as you say, it's all part of the same community. So and. This has been our first look at the the comic situation uh, as a, a community, yeah. and um, it's definitely something we want to push towards. Yeah, well, look, you know, we originally said that um, the mission statement was to create a community and a social structure around it, which we've achieved, and in the three years that we've been here, we do have an incredible following. We've got a lot of people who are very loyal and who support us and appreciate the fact that we are here to uh, do something that's community-based, which includes absolutely everyone, everyone from all walks of life and all ages, so no one's discluded. Well, I've noticed that because you do things, well, especially with your game,
gaming groups, you've got like specialist gaming groups. Yeah, we um, were doing uh, we were doing an autism specific group as well. Uh, we're not running that currently, but that was uh, space and staff issues um, on on their yeah. behalf. Yeah. And uh, it's something that we'll be looking to continue. Uh, we're working with the McIntyre Foundation and helping them with some work experience. We take on a lot of work experience in general, and it's again it's growing. So, yeah. and McIntyre is a really good course to be involved with because they're such a great group of kids. They are. They're actually fantastic, and uh, the enthusiasm that they bring is, uh, is is impressive. So, yeah, it's been good. All right. Well, I'll let you get on with whatever you need to get on with. I'm just shutting my brain down, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll speak to you again soon. Okay, appreciate you coming, buddy. No worries. Well, there you go. That finished off with Ian Hine, um, boss man, as he called himself, and it was actually printed on his T-shirt all the way through the weekend. He's been running a comic store for as long as I can remember. Um, He used to have a little stall on one of our flea markets. He's always been into comics and Star Wars and stuff, and I've known him since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. He's expanded that so much, and as he said, next year he's hoping to do a proper Comic-Con, if you like, so we want to get involved with that with him next year. The free comic book day have, have you heard of mm-hmm. that uh, event? yeah we, we just recently had one yeah i think it's on the same day uh, each year uh, it's a bit uh, for anybody who doesn't know what it is it's, it's a bit like uh, record store day where the comic publishers i mean all the big boys as well as the uh, independent ones uh, they give out these special uh, issues of comics mm-hmm. which you can't get apart from at these free comic book days and these comics actually incorporate most of their characters so that um, you can get a feel for all their different um, publications and they they cover pretty much everything I mean I, I got a, a, a Marvel one which was the artwork in it is absolutely a, a, a enormous um, but the mm-hmm. uh, the other comic that I picked up I got it because it was unusual I can't remember what it was called now but it is, it's um, basically the history of hip hop set in a comic book so okay it's so well. um, they through different stages of the year so the early ones from the 19 late 1970s into the the 80s the the actual comic is actually produced in a way so it looks like the pages are faded as though they were from the 1970s hmm. which is kind of cool in a way um, that is a neat effect it, it's almost like looking at these you know, you know the old comic books where you used to have the uh, advertisements in them where you could buy a pair, oh, sure. of, pair of x-ray specs or the x-ray glasses yeah <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff uh, a load of stuff chewing gum that, that sort of thing yeah yeah um, I used to love reading those adverts. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's set up to, to be like that in this comic. Yeah, you're allowed two comics per person, and then you can have a look at the stuff that's for sale. And a lot of the stuff they were selling was at a reduced price um, to get people to maybe subscribe to different comics and things. Um, and as you heard, there was a lot more than just the comics for sale going on. There's like T-shirts, all kinds of things. Um, they had games gaming tables there as well um, so you could play all kinds of games from what is that one is it Yukio uh, is one of them there Yukio. Was, yeah uh, there was one of the Star Wars ones where you um, you got the different ships and, and whatnot yep. on there and um, uh, anything can happen at the roll of a dice kind of thing mm, um, yep. and uh, there was My Little Pony as well um, 
Oh, yeah, that's huge. It's scary to say that is huge. It's got its own... That even has its own convention. Yeah. That's scary. I think it's called BronyCon or something like that. It's just like, really? We uh, A friend of mine, uh, his little brother put his sister's My Little Pony in the oven and it melted. Uh, and, and, and from that point, we used to call it My Little Warthog. <laughs> <laughs> which was quite amusing at the time but it wasn't when his parents found out I can tell you but uh, yeah <laughs> But yeah, so Ian's involved in this. The, the new shop that he was talking about, he has now got the keys. They've actually moved in. As he said, it's three times the size of his original shop. And nice. So if anybody's in the Aylesbury area, go down to Bourbon Street, next door to Noodle Nation. So if you've uh, if you bought some stuff from Ian's Dead Universe comic, go down to Noodle Nation as well, because they do some really good Chinese food in there. Um <laughs> <laughs> Two plugs in one. This show has been brought to you by. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was a really good event. I enjoyed it. It was our first attempt at doing interviews in that kind of environment. But I think we did quite well to get the interviews that we got there, I think. Yeah, those were good. When we come back, we'll be talking about another event. Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The Garbage Pod. Hello there, Garbage Podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the executive director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the Podosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the Garbage Pod. Here comes the sun. So here I am at uh, Letchworth Town Centre uh, for uh, an amazing event that's hopefully going to happen later this morning. It's it's quite early in the morning, and uh, I've been invited along by the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society for the BBC Stargazing Live official event that they're holding here for the solar eclipse Um, uh, a bit later on I'll be talking to members of the uh, Letchworth and District Astronomical Society um, and it should be quite an amazing event so here I am with uh, Nick and Dave from the uh, Letchworth and District uh, Astronomical Society and as I mentioned earlier we're here here for the uh, solar eclipse now what exactly are we expecting to to see today? Well about now uh, we should see the moon starting to cross the sun's face we should see a small indent at this moment in time Um, and during the next hour it will cross the sun and predict, uh, leave a small crescent at maximum just after 9.30 right. and then after that it'll move across in the, uh, to the other side and then leave the sun's face about 10.30 an hour later So how often do these occurrences actually take place? They're actually quite rare, especially in the UK. Um, every few years, I'd say. I'm not quite sure when the next one the next is. next one is uh, 2026. 2026, OK, in the UK. But right. uh, there'll be others in another part of the world before then. We've got a little bit of cloud cover at the moment. Um, would we still 
be a lot, would there still be a likelihood of seeing something? Well, I had a look at a, look at a computer earlier, which showed some cloud cover, and there's a, a, a border a bit north of here, somewhere looked as if it crossed the north of, uh, just north of Cambridge here, so, and it's supposed to be moving south, according to the weather reports, so okay. we might catch the end of it. But in any case, at 9.30, the place will go completely, well, almost dark. Mm. So well, the birds will stop singing, etc., etc. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, that will happen. We can guarantee that. Oh, wow. Uh, but, mm. it, it gradually goes dark. It, yeah. it, you'd really notice if it notice it if it went suddenly dark. To, yeah, yeah. Amount. But uh, it's uh, less obvious when it goes gradually dark over an hour or so. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about the society? Yes, it's been around since the early 80s. Um, it was started by four people uh, at the time and has grown quite a lot since then. We've got about 110 members at the moment, wow. plus family members as well. Um, we meet not far from here in the Free Church Hall last Wednesday in a month yeah. uh, where we have a guest speaker. We do have occasionally extra talks as well during the middle of the month. Right. Um, we have an observatory. We have an standalone farm. A standalone farm as well. Brilliant. With a 14-inch telescope here, something much bigger than the ones you see around here. Right. And they're observing evenings as well. Great. And we occasionally have trips around the country as well, a couple of years generally. Wow. Brilliant. Now, do you need to have some of this really high spec equipment to get involved or is it quite easy to, to get set up no you don't need to have high spec equipment probably half our members don't have a telescope right they're just interested in astronomy like to come to the talks and look through other people's telescopes as well but well, we do rent telescopes yes to, we do we do to five pounds a month that's not bad. fairly simple ones you could probably yeah. get a reasonable start in astronomy for about 300 pounds yes yeah, when it's like everything else, you know, when you get in very, very interested, it's then thousands and thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah. I would think about ten of our members, including Nick, have their own observatories. Wow. So, about ten, I think, yeah. 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 That's brilliant. Right, so I'll leave this for now, and then we'll come back a little bit later on and um, see how things are progressing. Okay. Okay, so I'm now with Gordon, who's the chairman of the Letchworth and District uh, Astronomical Society. Um, how do you think today went? Well, it was fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, it I mean, was. It, it was. It was really good to see so many people come out, all ages, some children as well, got out of school. I guess you'd have to say we didn't see it for real in the sky, but we had our backup plan in place, so we were able to show live views off the internet. Um, when the internet was breaking up, we had this planetarium software which showed it exactly as it would appear in Lexworth. And it clearly got people's interest, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, I would say you have to be careful. It looked like a success, but you have to talk to the people who come and see, really, and ask them. But I think it was. I think there was a lot of interest. And that's, that's um, what you good. want, really, Absolutely. because it's, it's given you um, promotion as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. So it's, To me, it's great to see there's a definite change in the level of interest in astronomy in the last few years. Part of it, no doubt, to the BBC showing the programmes, uh, raising people's awareness. 
and it's noticeable. We've noticed it. Um, we had our, uh, a big star party in January, and lots of people come. Yeah. Um, so there's a definite, a definite increase in interest, and it's great to see so many people come out in the morning. But if anybody's interested, just Google LDAS, and we're about the first thing that comes up on the search. Brilliant. And all the information's on the website about talks, events, um, whatever else we're doing. Now, what we like to do on TGP Nominal is people that we have involved on on the podcast, um, we like to make them honorary crew members. And um, what I've got here, uh, if I can present you with it, is um, a TGP Nominal um, mission patch. Right, okay. So, um, yeah. Um, so what I'll ask in a moment, if you if you wouldn't mind, if, if you can hold, hold yeah. that and get uh, I'll get a p- picture, yeah, no so we'll put you on the honorary crew member page. So yeah, thanks again uh, for letting us tag along uh, no, you're today. Any, anybody that comes along is more than welcome. And um, yeah, any other events that uh, we can cover for you, we'd, we'd right. love to, okay. to take part. Right. Okay. So, That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Now, unfortunately, the uh, cloud cover was too much and we didn't see very much Mm. at all. Actually, the clouds started to disappear just as we were packing up. And um, of course, (laughs) we did manage to see um, the the sun with a little bite out of the top left hand Mm. corner, which I've actually got some photographs of that I can uh, put on the on the show notes, uh, as well as um, some of the other things we actually saw through the through the Internet. We uh, we had a projector and projected it onto a, a big screen for people to see nice whilst we're there so it was actually live feed from the Faroe Islands which had totality and it was amazing to see and it was good to see all these people out um, you'll be able to see in in some of the photographs the amount of telescopes and things we had there um, <laughs> but we didn't see anything um, yeah but um, it was good to meet up with Gordon uh, Nick and Dave um, and um, they've got other events that coming up later on in the year and hopefully we can um, cover them with the with the society which would be yeah, great that's cool now fortunately I know that in late September there's going to be a total lunar eclipse and us Yankees are going to be able to witness that because it's going to be favoring North America and it's going to last you'll, you'll be able to see it on both the east and west coasts so that's going to be a fun one so you might be able to uh, do something for us for that. I might be able to do something for you on that one. In fact, <laughs> I, I, we, we, had a, we also had a, a total lunar eclipse, or really close to total lunar eclipse, a few years ago. And I got some pictures of that one, too. So, I don't know, the moon just likes us, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, the last solar eclipse that we had was in 1999. The last time that I remember that we had even a partial solar eclipse over here, I was still in grade school. Wow. Yeah. But the the one we had in 99 was eerie very eerie because this this last one was in in um in march at the end of march it was a bit cloudy and, uh, and dull anyway but the last one in 99 was in the middle of summer so we had blue skies and everything and then it went like <laughs> dusk and very cold it, it went from uh, sort of like you know really? summertime weather to really cold and all the birds <laughs> stopped singing uh, because they ah. thought it was night time uh, and then about five minutes later they all started um, chirping again because they got a bit confused with what was going on <laughs> nice 
<laughs> but uh, we um, actually got to see it last time because I was working in an industry where they did a lot of welding and things, and we, we actually watched it through a uh, a welding mask. Um, oh, nice. But you have to make sure that you've got the right gradient of um, darkness on, on your lens. Don't do it mm-hmm. unless you know for sure that it was the right gradient. We had looked into that first, so I'll just make that perfectly clear. If you do... <laughs> Uh, having the opportunity of witnessing one of these don't try and do it through sunglasses or anything oh, like no, that no. it's just stupid um, they were uh, really good with us actually they they issued us with a, a guide BBC Stargazing Live guide to um, looking at uh, eclipses and what settings to put on your camera and all that kind of thing uh, oh, nice. really nice guide and a pair of the uh, solar eclipse glasses although it's I can't actually you don't have to worry about that with a lunar eclipse uh, no you don't <laughs> <laughs> it was good to meet up with the guys I will put the, the photograph of uh, Gordon in the uh, honorary crew members page new crew member very good Listening to Music Mondays with me, Alan Taylor Shearer. This is the Wake Radio Group, Shasia's 1800 Online. Scottish sovereigns on the land. It's a real pleasure to be here. Gonna play a track now for me, old mate Mark Taylor of the Garbage Pod and TGP Nominal. Did a heck of a lot of work to get the Yuri's Night podcast together in two parts that we played for you exclusively on Awake Radio. Next on the show, to me, this is no regular guy, uh, because this guy, to me, is a gaming god. But we heard him in the last podcast uh, regarding his his uh, interesting stories from the International Space Station and, and growing up in the family of you know astronauts and so forth. And this time, we're going to talk about gaming, because that's where I know him first. It's Richard Garriott, who is probably better known to people like me as Lord British, having created the Ultima series, which is really the first big computer role-playing game. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is... I mean, consider that I've been gaming since the, the Atari 2600 was new. You know, so early 1980s. And uh, I've been gaming ever since. So to be able to talk to Richard Gary just on that front was amazing, especially considering that you know we've only been doing this podcast for a couple of months. This is this is what episode five now. Yeah, yeah. So to be able to talk with Richard Gary, it was just I, I talk about you know squeeing like a schoolgirl, and internally I I definitely was. So to be able to talk with him for about an hour about the the space station and so forth and then for about a half an hour about gaming was just amazing and so this part is the interview regarding the gaming and his perspective on you know rpgs the way they were the the way they are now and the, the upcoming spiritual successor to the ultima franchise that's coming up so that's what this segment is all about so mark if you would roll it I know John is really itching to talk with you about gaming and obviously you've got your, your new projects that you would like to promote as well. So I'm going to let uh, John take the reins. And um, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just go. kind of trying to control myself from squeeing like a schoolgirl. You know, when he said that he was going to talk to you, I was like, ah! Because, I mean, I, Ultima, I've been playing that since my Commodore 64 days. And I also noticed the uh, serpent necklace that you've got from Ultima 7. Uh, for those who... Uh, can't see it unfortunately that's obviously it. it's uh, serpent isle which when was that released the 90s early 90s 
but but yeah, but of course, let me tell you a little story about this serpent, which is well, I'm a product really of both of my parents. You know, my we we've been talking a lot about the influence of my father, or things that would, people would think would be the influence of my father. Uh, but my mother is a professional artist, and every year I would kind of learn some new form of art from my mother, uh, whether that was how to draw in perspective or how to make jewelry or pottery or other things. And so this snake is something that I made. This is the first piece of silver jewelry I ever made. Behind me here in my shop actually is more silver making supplies, jewelry making supplies. I still do it to this day. But this particular snake, I made it about the age of 11, and it is permanently attached to my neck. There's actually nice. no clasp anywhere on this. Uh, I, a, a clasp is actually a fairly complex piece of machinery for the first thing you ever make. And so I just I just made this on my neck. I uh, finished it right <laughs> on my neck. And so it's been there since I was 11. And so it's shown up in Ultima's. Uh, the reason I wear it is not because of Ultima. The reason it's in Ultima is because I always wear it, if you follow that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, once it actually broke, the center ring eventually wore out and literally fell off one time in the snow of my, unfortunately, my brother's house, so I, could, I found it again. Once I took it off to send on the space shuttle with my father, and the third time was on my own launch, if there was a pad abort, you could re-impact on the Earth with about 25 Gs of force. And so they were worried about it fracturing my spine in the back if there had been a pad aborted landing. And so during the launch process, uh, I also had to break open a ring and uh, I carried it in my pocket on the way to space. So I have a picture of it floating without me, uh, you know, in space. Uh, but as soon as I got into orbit, I put it back on and it's been there since again. So yeah, it's, it's, it's technically been off a couple of times, but not for long. <laughs> I recognized it as soon as I saw it. So uh, your upcoming game, Shroud of the Avatar, I am a Kickstarter backer. Great, thank you. Um, when do you see a release date for that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the era of online games, release dates are blurrier than ever. So it, the game is actually live 24 hours a day, seven days a week right now. So anybody that wants to play Oh, I have it loaded on Steam. Down. Uh, uh, but if, you, if the real question is, is when will it be done? We're projecting close to the end of this year. And okay. whether it falls into the year or out of the year kind of depends on how some funding uh, trends run. But it's close to the end of this year will be when it, when we make the final wipe of characters. And that's sort of what we call commercial launch is that mm -hmm. we're done mm -hmm. with the beta testing. We are confident people can you know run from here and forever with uh, the economy and leveling balance as well as it needs right. to and all the features in the game present and so we think that'll be close to the end of the year okay i mean I've, I've got it downloaded through steam and it's constantly updating but part of me just says you know what i just want to experience it when it's finished because my wife could tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of hours i spent playing the ultima series so this is just amazing to me now one thing i, I do on a more uh like i guess legal issue Obviously, Electronic Arts owns Origin. There's an interesting backstory on that one that I'm sure you could uh, tell us about. But how did you get past things like the copyrights or anything? I mean, is EA saying, yes, you can use the Britannia avatar or anything that was trademarked? Did you originally own it and just never sold it to them? So uh, you'll notice we're not calling it Ultima. Uh, Britannia is public domain, you know, like New York and Old York. Okay. Uh, you know, Britannia is no big deal. Um, Lord British is my trademark. This snake is my trademark. The word avatar, we originally trademarked the word avatar, but EA gave it up when everybody else in the gaming industry started to use it. So it is now a public domain because everyone uh, you know, around us is now uh, uh, using that. So we've been very careful to not use any intellectual property 
that would you know, interfere with uh, what EA owns. Uh, what I've done is I've said, look, this is the lands of Lord British. Lord British is creating a new Britannia. You know, my own personal history comes forward. So we've been very, very careful to uh, keep those separate. I would not call it probable at this stage, but we talk with EA all the time about, you know, why don't you let us make this an Ultima so that it will it will help you and it would help us just to let things flow more naturally. So you never know. That may, that may happen until that hypothetical possibility, uh, we're being very careful to keep them distinct. I mean, you'd think from their perspective, it's just money to them to say, okay, yeah, here's the license for or anything Ultima related. The video yeah. game industry is very weird with the, the way that some companies handle copyrights and intellectual property. But EA has actually gotten better about that. You know, uh, for example, uh, the Underworld game, which uh, was originally part of Ultima, has now been licensed out to, again, the ex-origin developer of Underworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know Brian Fargo has gotten a few of, access to a few of his uh, trademarks, etc. So anyway, we're we're uh, you know we'll see we'll see how that pans out over time. But uh, uh, with or without it, we describe this as the spiritual successor to Ultima. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not a it's not a sequel. It's not uh, part of the same pantheon of truth. But it is the spiritual successor in that you know it has all of my game design philosophy in it. It has. The same kind of virtue stories I talk about in it. We, we Lord British is there. It's in a place called New Britannia. We're sidling up as close as we can with, for the convenience of players without being offensive to Electronic Arts. Right, that makes sense. Now, with with all of your experience with Ultima and so forth, as well as your love of space, once you're done with Shroud of the Avatar, have you put in any consideration on maybe a space-based RPG? I think about it a lot, but I actually don't predict that that will be the case. You know, I I think that uh, space-based games uh, require different types of technology, and different types of technology give you different types of interaction capability. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think the guy that's doing the best job of space uh, sim games right now is Chris Roberts, uh, you know, whose game uh, Star Citizen through his company, Cloud Imperium, is, is obviously doing phenomenally well. Uh, backer on that, too. You know, we, are, we are the number two, Shroud of the Avatar is the number two crowd-funded game in history, and we are a distant two yeah. behind <laughs> uh, you know, Cloud Imperium with Star Citizen. So more power to him. You know, he's, uh, you know, while I've got lots of competition with World of Warcraft and EverQuest and you know, tons of other people that, I'm, you know, that are gunning for my part of the pie, Chris has the great advantage that uh, there hasn't been a great space sim no. arguably since EVE Online, which continues to do great, but virtually no one has uh, gone in to try to compete with what Chris has done even in the past. The only space game that I can really think of with, with great fondness besides his Wing Commander series is probably like the uh, free space games. Yep. It's been 15, 20 years or whatever since they were released. So he's definitely filling in a void. And granted, I mean, uh, Shroud of the Avatar is still going to a crowded marketplace, but there are a lot of people like myself who still have great fondness of those times. So I think it's going to be really good to see. I look at it this way, too. You know, if if you look at role-playing games, there's sort of two schools of thought. And I like to believe that there's my school of thought and pretty much everybody else. And that may be overstated. (laughs) Uh, or egocentric, but uh, uh, but what what I mean by that is there are some great role playing games going back to even things like um, Diablo mm-hmm. or obviously uh, World of Warcraft, EverQuest. Uh, you know, even going back in the day to Wizardry and Might and Magic, if you go way way back, and those games often were superior even to my own work. Uh, you know, 
measurably superior in things like the challenge and reward cycle. The level grind aspect of those games, which can be used both positively or in a derogatory, is really well done. I mean, their mastery of the slot machine mechanic of, you know, building a level fence around an area for you to explore that you can't go outside of until you level up and giving you exact metering out to you the right level of challenge to then give meter out to you the right level of award to keep your interest sustained for a very long period of time is outstanding. They do a great job of it. Plus on top of that art direction and other, you know, aspects of user interface and other things that I think are doing, they do a masterful job. The problem is that's what they're all pursuing. Almost everybody competing in the space does that. Right. What I do, on the other hand, is my games are from a challenge and award cycle, I think are quite a bit more sloppy. They're they're rougher, uh, not, not nearly as well refined. But I build completely fully interactive realities where if you can see it and it looks like it should operate in a particular way, it will operate in that way. You know, it, it com- in contrast, uh, like uh, my last company, NCSoft, had a game called Lineage, which is, still remains one of the most popular games in Asia. And you would walk around and see a very beautiful farm stand with fruit in baskets and a chest on the floor. But that's all art. You can't actually open the chest. You can't actually take the fruit. It's just art. And for most of these level grinding games, the backdrop is art. Mm-hmm. For my games, it's not art. If you if you see it, it, it should function in some way that you can uh, predict and uh, uh, and take advantage of. And so the virtual reality aspect of what I'm building, I think, is much deeper. Uh, plus, the reason to be there is not just to kill monsters and level up or defeat the big bad guy. They're all stories about personal growth in ethics and virtue. I like to think that they mean more to a player to go through those experiences than just to level up. Uh, and so I think I'm still targeting something that's quite different than other creators of role-playing games. And, and I think the people who've played Ultimas down through the years, like yourself, John, mm-hmm. you know, probably get that. Richard, I know gaming has, has been a little bit different in the UK in the early years, as it were, um, because we had the, like, uh, the machines like the, the ZX Spectrum. Did, did you ever develop anything for the, for the Spectrum? Uh, not for the Spectrum. I, uh, I had one of those small kit-like uh, Z80 processor uh, devices yeah. uh, in the United States, so I, I, I'm well aware of that particular hardware that you're referring to. But uh, no, I mean, I think I'm, I think I wrote a program or two on them when I had one in my own possession, but nothing published. Although Chris Roberts uh, did yeah. uh, publish some of his first games on it. Because there was a rumor at one stage that if you could write something and, and develop it and make it work on the Spectrum, you could make it work on any format. <laughs> well, you know, to a large degree, I think that that, that, that high concept is, is very true. You know, uh, kids today, they are so spoiled with their newfangled computers. <laughs> uh, you know, but it, but it really is true that, you know, we had to manage every bit, you know, not just every mm-hmm. bite. I mean, literally, we would pack things into bits in order to store things efficiently. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the luxury of wasting a whole bite on a piece of a data structure. And there were no art tools to draw things with. There were no render. You know, just the other day I got asked by somebody like, hey, what engine did you use to drive, you know, a Calabath? And I'm going like, there was no engine. What do you mean engine? <laughs> you know, I wrote that in assembly language and there's no pixel that I didn't literally draw on graph paper, then convert to binary, then convert to hexadecimal, then write a piece of code to copy it into the memory space through a very complicated algorithm because it's not linearly laid out. And then if it didn't show up where I wanted it, you had to go like, where did I screw up? Was it the code? Was it the hex? Was it the binary? Was it the graphics? Uh, you know, on a graph paper, who knows? 
And uh, uh, so, uh, so yes, if you could use those early machines, by today's standards, it's, it seems easy. Uh, on the other hand, there's so much to be put into the today's machines. You know, right. the, the amount of power and memory is so vast that it's very difficult to uh, build a team that can can even just uh, volumetrically fill you know all these things can do today. Yeah, well, wasn't a, a Calabeth done originally on the Apple II? That's exactly right. In fact, uh, uh, although you can now play it on the iPhone too, somebody went and ported it to the <laughs> iPhone. So, but, uh, when I play it today, when I show people it today, it's always on the iPhone. I remember Ultima Five. I think came on four double-sided floppy disks uh, for my Commodore. Oh, there wow. you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm showing, uh, for those of you who can't see, uh, what I was showing uh, right there, just pardon the noise as I juggle my, my camera, uh, that is the original Apple II that I wrote all those programs on. Nice. And it still works, by the way. So uh, it, uh, I, I keep it functioning. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a book author by the name of Bruce Sterling who lives in Austin, Texas, and he was invited to speak at a game developers conference. And this, and the speech he gave, he said, uh, "You know, when I when I write a book, of course, I'm trying to write the b- best book ever written. But the probability of writing the best book ever written is very low, because <laughs> there have been a lot of really good authors over a very long period of time. On the other hand, if I even get into the top ten, I will probably stay in that top ten for a long time because it was so hard to get in there in the first place. You know, he said, you guys in games have the opposite problem." You know, games haven't really existed for very long, and so the skill set to develop a game is improving, even with your amongst yourselves, and the power of the machine to develop one on is improving. Uh, and so, even if you write the best game ever written today, the odds are somebody will write a better one tomorrow. Just even if it didn't have a better machine, just because the skills go up, but especially with that better machine. And worse yet, not only is your pillar of greatness going to be surpassed, but the machine you wrote it on is going to disappear. And so people will never again see your masterpiece that you, or what you thought was a masterpiece in some previous era. And as I listened to him, it was like he was speaking straight to me and driving a dagger through my heart because I was going, (laughs) I have been here since the beginning. You know, I've been writing games since literally the beginning. And I would like to believe that one or two of them were at least worth remembering in some sense of the word. And already at the time he made this speech, which was 15 or 20 years ago, I didn't have at that time any of my Apple II's operational, and nor did anybody else. And it was before the era of emulators, where you could actually now you could, of course go emulate those. But since the day he made that speech, I went and got my old Apple II's. I got them all up and running. I keep a Calabeth and uh, the original Ultima running on them. I bought enough on eBay to have spare parts, so if these <laughs> things go down, I can bring them back online. And so I have kept my own little you know, shrine to the dark past that nobody else will remember here beside me in my office ever since. TGP Nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. So what, after Shroud of the Avatar, I mean, unless this is too early to say anything, what do you plan on doing afterward? Well, Shroud of the Avatar, you know, uh, as you may know, there were 10 plus solo player Ultimas, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Mm-hmm. And there was one online... Ultima Online. Mm-hmm. And Ultima Online still exists today, and it still has a substantial number of subscribers today, and it's been 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so for Shroud of the Avatar, we anticipate that's going to keep us busy for a good amount of time. In fact, mm-hmm. we already have five, well, four uh, after the original expansions planned. 
and they nice. expand the entire continent. So each expansion basically doubles the scale of the world before it. <laughs> and uh, and so for the for the wow. for up to five years after the launch of Shroud of the Avatar, it will be Shroud of the Avatar. Um, yep. That being said, if we're economically successful, we of course will start uh, you know n- new games to happen concurrently. But literally, we put zero thought to what those other games would would be or should be because we're you know a hundred percent of the company is devoted to Shroud of the Avatar. Uh, completely understandable, knowing what you just said about the expansions. For those of us who are the old school Ultima people, are you going to be hiding any Easter eggs throughout the world that we need to look at? Oh yeah, so there will be homage <laughs> to all things Ultima. I don't know if you know the homage about thing or the the old uh, Easter eggs like killing Lord British, which was uh, always a fun one for people. Since Ultima Four, I've always had this interesting aspect about killing children, which is highly uh, debated in the public because they don't understand the full story. Uh, do you know this one I'm speaking of? No, no, that no, one I'm not really, familiar no. with. Okay, so let me explain this one since I've described killing children in a game. So, uh, <laughs> deserve, deserve some explanation. You know, in Ultima 4, the whole point of the story was to prove yourself to be a person of good virtue. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I tried to put in tests that would test your behavior. And even if it looked like a test but wasn't a test, that was good enough because mm-hmm. you didn't know which ones I was actually able to test. And so if I could set up a circumstance that may, would make you wonder what would be the right behavior now, that at least means I'm making you think. Mm-hmm. And near the end of Ultima 4, there was a room where there were children. I, I had the icon of a child in the game. And so I made cages in the corners of the room full of these children that, and a lever in the middle of the room that when you pull the lever, it would open those cages. But those children actually weren't uh, innocent children. They were monsters, literally mm-hmm. monsters. They just happened to be using the icon of a child in the game. But I knew that that would make you, the player, go like, huh, what do I do? If I kill the children, I'm going to lose my virtue status, and that would be a bad thing. And so you would have to work to escape this room without killing the children, even though I knew the children were just monsters that happened to just mm. have the icon shape of a child. And uh, so it, to me, it didn't really matter how you got out of that room, or if, if, if you got out of the room, or even if you killed right. the children, because it, I knew it wasn't really able, to, the, the game didn't know better. They were monsters. But uh, just before the game was released, uh, my brother came into my office uh, and showed me a letter that was written to him by one of our playtesters and said, Richard, Richard, you know, please explain to me what's up. And the letter basically said, I refuse to work for a company that so clearly supports child abuse. And, and Robert's going, Richard, what did you do in the game? And I'm going like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so we had to go do some research to figure out what he was talking about. He was talking about that room. And my brother goes like, Richard, how are you making this game where you have to kill children to get out of this room? And I'm going like, well, first of all, he's wrong. You don't. You could charm them. You could put them to sleep. Mm. Uh, don't just walk out without pulling the lever. Um, you know, you could uh, drop your sword and instead hit them until their hit points went low enough to where they would run away on their own. Uh, you know, there's all these other ways you could get through this room. But also, I knew they're monsters, and so mm-hmm. kill them if you want. It really doesn't matter. And by the way, the fact that that I provoked this kind of emotional reaction in a game, I think, is good. Mm-hmm. And my brother mm-hmm. said, "No way, we're not going to publish this game. If you leave that in the game, we're not publishing it." To which I then said, tough luck. I'm leaving the <laughs> game because I'm proud of the fact that it provoked an emotional reaction. Yep. And then we had this battle and my parents got involved and <laughs> they sided with my brother. And, and uh, you know, basically anybody that was asked told me to take it out of the game, but I refused. And we eventually published it and no one cared. No one complained <laughs> about it at all. But nice. every Ultima sense and now every game sense has the homage to the room of killing children. 
where there's always <laughs> some way that you as a player will in- inadvertently get a chance to cause the death of some innocent children. And uh, and people have noticed that as a pattern. And so people now are like going like, what is Richard Garriott? What is he? Ha- what problem does he have with children? There's always <laughs> this way that children end up dying horribly in his game. And so uh, anyway, that's where it goes back to. But yeah, there's tons of those kind of Easter eggs that we'll leave around that are you know, just kind of homages to the past. I'm so looking forward to this. You bring up a good question, though. One of the things that that has been kind of an issue, or at least some people have, have brought it up, is the issue of morality in games, because they all seem to be either good or bad, no in between. It, it's like with the Mass Effect games, you've got Paragon or you've got Renegade. Uh, with the uh, infamous games, you've got, you're either playing bad guy or good guy, and you've got good karma or bad karma. How are you handling that sort of thing in Shroud of the Avatar? Well, a few people now have started to follow me down the path of uh, having virtue in games, which I think is a, is a good thing. But I think most people are, are implementing it, like you've noted, very black and white. And by the way, in Ultima 4, which I did in 1983, it was also pretty black and white. But reality is not nearly that black and white, as you know. There are lots of shades of relevance to what is really the right way to behave at this particular time. And there's historical context, there's interpersonal context that makes all of those decisions actually very difficult, or often very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you even, you even look at, you know, one of my favorite examples is you, you, you look back at biblical texts about how you should live your life. And I think most of us today think, you know, dragging your wife out in the street and stoning her to death for some infraction is probably not, the, you know, the right way to, right. Uh, to behave. But at that time, it probably seemed very virtuous and upright and, you know, appropriate. So virtue even evolves over time. And so what I try to do in my games is set up certain circumstances where I don't necessarily try to take a stance as to the right and wrong outcome, but rather show you the, the ramifications of either choice to where, you know, uh, you, know you know, the classic, uh, you know, some of the, there, there's a, a lot of psychological studies on things like, um, you know, the difference how people react of you can divert a train that is going to run over 10 people. And if you pull the switch, instead it will run over one person, you know, do you throw the switch? And, uh, and, and a lot of people would say, uh, you know, maybe yes. And on the other hand, if you reframe that question of, you know, would you push somebody off a bridge in front of the train to stop the train that would otherwise run over 10 people? Well, the answer becomes no, because now you're actually like shoving a person in the way of a train. And, and there's all these, these moral choices you make that depending on how you frame them, your own gut reaction to them changes. And so I try to set up stories that allow us to put you in circumstances to, to see how you might behave. Uh, another one of my favorites actually goes back to Ultima 6, which was called The False Prophet, mm-hmm. where the cover of the game shows the heroic, virtuous avatar, you, Mm-hmm. Standing mm-hmm. on the chest of a red-winged, leather-fanged, clawed gargoyle mm-hmm. uh, that clearly means you're defeating the, the evil. And the way the game begins is the gargoyles are invading Britannia, so you're set up to fight them. And, they, and in fact, they even try to kill you personally at the very beginning of Ultimate Six. And so uh, what you discover as you go on, though, is that the gargoyles have families and architecture and homes and writing that you can't read and a language they talk to each other in that you can't understand and so you can either commit genocide and wipe them out and save Britannia mm-hmm. and lose the game or you can bother to read the texts and learn their language 
and figure out why they're so upset in the first place, which actually turns out to be things that you had been doing that were causing harm to their society. And so their position was rationalized. And so what I really think I tried to do there was set you up to be a bigot, set you up to be racist. While a lot of us modern thinkers would like to think that we're not racist, the fact is we still use visual clues to make judgments. You still use, it's got horns, it's got fangs, it's got claws, it's got to be bad. And I'm going like, yep. well, where is that written? You know, that's only, again, it's, it's a trope that we all use, but it's not a foundational fact of reality. And, and you know, 100 years ago, that could have been used to justify other forms of racism. 100 years ago, mm -hmm. of course, they're not like us. They're different. They're, you know, they're, they, they don't look the same. They don't act the same. They don't speak the same language. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we're superior. We have better houses. You know, and uh, and so uh, I like drawing out those sorts of parallels uh, to show people that we're all still fallible, that we all can be fooled into uh, taking a variety of positions on issues and that all of those positions have complex outcomes. I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned Ultima Six because most of my friends who, who you know grew up with that era, they all say that Ultima Seven's my favorite. Well, Ultima Six has always been my favorite. I still remember the theme music even now as you were talking about it. I'm just really psyched for this game. I can't, even if it's really not going to be an Ultima game, spiritual successor is just fine by me and I'm really glad to be part of the, uh, the, the kickstart on this one. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the, uh, the support and I appreciate that uh, you, you, you get it. You get where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. If you go on our community sites and listen to people who are already in playing, even if you choose to wait for it to be finished, which I fully respect, uh, you know, three, two thirds of three fourths of our, our backers are doing as you are. Yeah. Uh, and I, I totally get that. But, uh, but if you go to the community site and kind of listen to the chatter, I think people understand that well and are, are frankly helping us make sure that we fulfill that, that promise. Yeah, part of me feels guilty because it's like, I could be helping them. I could be helping to make the game better. But part of me just wants the whole experience, so I'm kind of fighting with that right now. <laughs> yeah, and uh, by the way, both paths are great, so don't don't fret it either way. Uh, you will uh, you'll enjoy either path you choose. Oh, I'm just so psyched for this, and I'm going to have to pull out my uh, Ultima Ascension collector's box and and all the, all of my maps and so forth. I'm going to have to frame them on the wall now. And of course, as you know, we're going to put a cloth map in this game as well. So uh, <laughs> and trinkets, some kind of trinkets now as well. So. Some traditions just have to be kept. <laughs> so, yeah, that was Richard Garriott. And um, as you could tell, John really was in his element with that, uh, oh, man. <laughs> that last interview. I um, love it. Well, that's the thing, because I, just, I didn't know what really to say to him before the interview. But he was he's just so personable and he just pulls the questions out of you. Yeah, it's just it's great. It's just like, hey, yeah, we're just sitting at a bar chatting. And it was really interesting to, to, to know a different uh, relating to the gaming side of it when he, he was talking about that. He, he's got that Apple II computer yes. that he keeps <laughs> getting the spares for just to keep it running so that he can play just one game on it. Yeah, but really, that that's the game that started it all for him. Yeah, this is true. So um, that yeah, just so, and then that serpent chain around his neck. I, I recognized that immediately, which was so cool. I knew of the the, the serpent chain anyway because I'd heard the stories of um, the fact that he can't actually take that off. It's good that it's been part of his gaming history as well. So it's mm -hmm. a, it's kind of like a, a legend and a legacy that, that has always been with the games. And yeah, he's so um, down to earth when he talks about mm -hmm. everything that he, he's involved in. It was a great catch really to be able to get him on the show for both episodes. That was just so amazing. 
Uh, it was considering the fact that it was just done by one tweet. So now we got to we just have to find excuses to bring him back. <laughs> um, he would be willing. Well, he said he would be willing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've been in, in touch with him since then. Um, Richard is going to be sending us a, a photograph that um, will be going on the crew members page. Um, nice. And from what I've heard, it's going to be quite special because I think he said that he's going to be taking the photograph with his flight suit that he wore on the International Space Station. That is so, so. cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's going to be uh, brilliant to see. I mean, as as you've probably seen already, we've we've got a picture back from Ryan and mm-hmm. and Loretta. So yeah, everybody who's been involved so far with the show has has really been great with us. And long long may it be that we we can have this relationship with these people. Also, one thing I will mention is that there is a video that Samantha Cristoforetti has done about using the toilet in the ISS. And you can actually see this keg thing that uh, Richard was talking about in the last month's um, show. Yeah, but it's all right somebody describing it, but actually seeing it. So you can, oh, look, yeah, there's the plastic bag and there's the shoebox size thing and there's the keg and there's the, you know. Ah, yeah, that's exactly like he described. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really good, actually, what she's been doing, all those kind of videos of what daily things they have to do and how do you um, wash yourself and things like that. And she, she actually showed you... Um, you know the moist towels and all that kind of thing so it all mm-hmm. kind of tallies up with, with our interview with Richard which is brilliant hello the three cuckoos podcast you are here you have downloaded us thank you very very much that's an enormous moth final cut of the podcast we'll leave it to the deaf member yeah, of the, the deaf member of the group yeah kissy fur was pretty good gummy kissy whoa hang on kissy fur turn your fleece into a trendy gilet hello pets and welcome to this week's how to thank you for the follow Baratheon if I could turn back time thankings I'm Kenny <laughs> Some cheese and a pickle. Cheese and fine wine. Oh, it's the Three Cuckoos podcast. That's it for this week's Lucky News. The worst podcast item ever. Tune in, iTunes, Stitcher, download us, subscribe us, yeah. stream us. Visit our blog. Because I do that. Yeah, And get us at Three Cuckoos. That would be a show. We have been sent in some questions from a young lad called Connor. Hey, Mark and John. Just here to give you a few questions. What are your thoughts on the theories that claim we didn't go to the moon? What are your thoughts on the claims that Yuri Gagarin never went to space? Did he go, or was it just a substitute? There are some claims that the ISS is actually in a giant water tank. What are your thoughts on this? Thank you for your time. Now, I've spoken to Connor's dad about this, um, find out what it, what it was all about, because I was... <laughs> I like you to 
seem to be down the conspiracy theory route. Now, what he's doing is an actual school project that he's doing, and he wanted to find a subject that he could talk about where, where you could discuss both sides of the coin. Space, there are always issues where you can dis- discuss both sides of the coin. Uh, well, his dad knew that I was into uh, space and things, and he knew I was running the podcast. So he said to Connor, why don't you send a message to Mark and and see uh, what he says about the different things. So I thought, well, I could discuss them with you and uh, we could go from there. So as he said, the first question was our thoughts on the theories uh, that claim that we didn't go to the moon. Now, there are many theories to that. Um, Yeah. Many of them mention a Burbank studio somewhere. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, the claims on that, to me, are stupid in in the respect that it would cost too much to fake it. It would cost too much to fake it. Uh, God, there's just so much. I just, it, it almost makes you want to find out what goes through these comp- conspiracy theorists' heads. And then you realize, you know what, I probably don't even want to go there. It's probably too <laughs> scary. But it, it's just... All right, I mean, first we've got... How many people have been involved with this thing that they would have had to have somehow silenced? There's just way too much to have done. And we've seen what special effects were like back in the late 1960s. They weren't good enough to pull this off. Sorry. Granted, when you're looking at um, 2001, I mean, the effects were fairly good, but the budget on that was extortionate on that movie oh yeah oh yeah um, but even at that you know in in the late 1960s and so forth they did they just could not have pulled that off you would have seen wires holding those guys up mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing and of course then we have of course the rocket launch itself obviously they, they actually launched that people were able to witness that thing going up what did they just spend millions and millions of dollars launching a rocket that went nowhere just for public show (laughs) i don't think so i mean there is to a certain degree it it was a a little bit of chest thumping if you like towards the russians but not to the degree that they wanted to waste that much taxpayers money on something that didn't go anywhere or do anything Um, right and as you say there was hundreds of thousands of people involved in the building of these rockets uh, if yeah. you think about it through the the whole program from um even from apollo 1 right up to um uh, apollo 17 right uh, um so so either these people were paid a lot of money and have just amazing abilities to keep their mouths shut about the fact that oh yeah well this is actually a hoax that the government told us to to play for them and just the just just that part alone and this is really is the same with the whole Yuri Gagarin, so we can pretty much answer both of those questions with the same thing. But granted, with the Soviet Union being so secretive, I guess there might be a better conspiracy theory there. Uh-huh. But still, it just comes down to, even if it was chest-thumping, it, well, first of all, the fall of the Soviet Union, we would have found out. Yeah. Because so many secret documents were made available after the fall of the Soviet Union. If Gagarin's launch was a fake, we would have known about it. Mm-hmm. That That's pretty much just a guarantee. I understand nothing we can say here will convince any kind of conspiracy theorists. They're just going to say we're part of the problem. You know, we're part of the conspiracy. Whatever. But 
you know, there's so many things that were involved, so many people that were involved that if either of these were fakes, and then of course whatever documentation would have been needed, whatever structural engineering and so forth, we would know by now. The the interesting thing on the the Yuri Gagarin story uh, or the question where was he substituted so it wasn't actually him who went up there? Um, actually, Yuri Gagarin was the substitute. Because that's true. German Titov yeah. was originally supposed to go up, but he seemed to have some kind of. Uh, but even then, that issue. just seems like a really dumb question. Because who cares? Because if he didn't go up, then someone else did. did. Yeah. So, so still the either Russians way, Russia the beat us too, sending someone into space. Mm-hmm. So what does it matter if it really was him or wasn't him? I, I really don't understand the basis for that. The the thing is also with Yuri Gagarin. Um, uh, nobody knew where he actually launched from because the Russians were trying to keep it secret from from the Americans. They actually said he he was launched from Baikonur. Well, he wasn't actually in Baikonur where it was launched, but now every launch pad that they had in Russia was called Baikonur mm-hmm. for that reason, so that it, they could launch from anywhere and still call it Baikonur. Right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can understand why that one would have a bit more. But again, the, the fact with the fall of the Soviet Union, we would have there would have been something out there. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. you know, because a lot of top secret information was discovered when that happened. Uh, even to the fact that with Sergei Korolev, the chief designer, as he was known at the time, um, his name wasn't made official to anybody until he died. Right. Um, so. It's one of these things. So he never got the the, the credit that he should have got for, for being the father of the modern um, Soviet program until he actually died. Right. Um, you know, and, and another one of these things that fuel the conspiracy theorists is that there's no way that they could have had the computing technology to do all of that. Well, why not? You know, they had gyroscopes to balance out things and really i mean the the yes there's a lot of math behind it but the computers back then were able to calculate it's just mathematical formulas it was basically and we had computers back then it was basically a calculator yeah it was a calculator really because it's just a bunch of you know velocity angle and all that it's just a bunch of mathematical formulas well that's exactly what all computers do even video games with the greatest graphics and and physics engines they're all mathematical computations between zeros and ones. That's right. It's just, uh, I, I just don't understand what goes through people's heads when they think this is all a conspiracy. And the thing with um, with the, the Russian program is, uh, and the difference between that and the American program, where the American program was much more uh, electronic-based. Um, right. The, the systems on the, on the Russian was pretty much more valves uh, I don't mean electrical valves. I mean actual sure. um, mechanical valves. Um, so yeah, um, it was a completely different yeah. setup altogether. I mean, they, uh, if you have a look at, I can't remember what it was called. Now. I think it was the N three, which was the the rocket that they intended yeah. to go to the moon with. Um, it's so much different to looking at an, uh, a, yeah. an Apollo. Uh, uh, oh yeah, capsule completely different yeah that I just I don't and and think about it that 30 years earlier well okay not 30 like 25 years earlier the Germans were successfully launching rockets into the center of London this is true yeah 
And that's without all the fancy stuff that they could have had on either the Russian or the American space missions. Uh, there is the, the controversy around that as well, isn't there? About uh, Oh, is there? Von, von, oh, oh God. Von, Please don't tell me people are saying that England bombed themselves. No, 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 no. I mean, the... the <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. No. Um, yeah, it wouldn't. <laughs> the, um, with Von Braun... Um, being that he was a, a German Nazi rocket scientist and mm -hmm. the, the Americans took him on board and basically said, if you want to uh, avoid getting um, war crimes against you, come work for our uh, space program, <laughs> which is basically what happened. Well, sounds like a good deal to me. It's, yeah, I'll have a go to you jail. Know, take your knowledge and do it to something beneficial and avoid war crimes. That sounds good. Yeah. There was a race uh, between the Russians and the Americans to who was going to get to him first. Not surprised. Although the Russians never got to him first, they got to some of his rockets and things and his plans soon after the Americans got him. And they were kind of retrofitting, if you like. They were right. looking at the plans and working what they were going to do with his plans from there. So basically, at the end of the day, the, the, the Vostok program... And the Apollo program, uh, yeah, it would have been the Apollo program, came from the same plans, really. Mm -hmm. And it all comes down to just, well, okay, yes, it's a bigger rocket, but then you change the trajectory to go up instead of more out. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and again, it's at that point, we had the computers. It's basic math. Sure, there's a lot of calculations that need to be done, but it's still math. And they knew how to do that back then. So it's just, I, I, those, those things about, yeah, it's all a conspiracy, it was all done on a soundstage, it just makes absolutely no sense. And if it really was a conspiracy, we would have found out by now, whether it was from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, yeah, there, there's no reason for the conspiracy, and I don't see any way that they could have contained it this long. The third question, which were there are some claims that the ISS is actually a giant water tank. What are your thoughts on this? Um, now, we can debunk that in one fell swoop. You can see the ISS from Earth. Yeah, you can see it through a telescope. But, yeah. <laughs> but there is a mock-up of the space station in a massive, great big swimming pool called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. Because now, that's where they train. Exactly. <gasps> Wait, oh, uh, so people actually think that that is the ISS. For it, what purpose? There is now, no space race involved with the ISS. The thing is, what gets me is, is they said, well, you know, they're not floating in space. They're in a, in a massive great big tank. If you're in a massive great big tank, you need to have the, the, the tubes attached to you. Yeah, which yeah they so have you, in, you still have the effects of gravity if you're inside this buoyant ISS. Mm-hmm. So you can't fake the gravity without some kind of wiring or rig or something like that. And we have lots of video of them floating through areas where you cannot successfully run a wire through. And the other thing is that some people claim that uh, a lot of these shots are done in uh, the equivalent of the vomit comet, okay? Um, now, you only get 30, right. 30 seconds Mm -hmm. of time on there now i've seen interviews on the iss that go on for 15 20 half yeah. an hour so sometimes a lot of the experiments that they do for for schools and so forth they last four or five minutes each hmm. so that's that's not right straight away that, that no 
um, twice the fact uh, uh, you've seen how sporadic people are when they're on the um, the vomit comet. It's uh-huh. um, you you cannot stay in one position for very long nope. because of the angle that uh, and the speed that you're actually travelling, um, which which is one of the things that made me laugh with Loretta. Oh, one of her positions is that she is a flight attendant on these <laughs> um, these flights, these zero G flights. And I said to her, I've just got this image of a trolley uh, going from one end of the <laughs> of the cabin <laughs> to the other. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she, she just laughed at that and said, well, you know, it's just there. I'm mainly just there for people's safety and, right. and that kind of thing. I'm going to float the peanuts down to you. <laughs> she, well, she says that sometimes you have to sp- travel at speed. And she said, the only way you can do that is stick your arm out and do Superman. And you go from one end of the cabin to the other in one move. Um, nice. I mean, she's done, I can't remember how many hours she said she'd done now. Um, I think she's done something like four or five hours worth of zero G uh, time in zero gravity. That's but ha- she's part of the conspiracy. Don't you understand <laughs> that? <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, yes, there is an ISS underwater. Uh, no, it is not the real one that you could actually see as it passes overhead. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a decent pair of binoculars or a telescope, um, there are websites you can go to that will tell you yep. exactly where it is at any particular time and when it's passing over you. And you can clearly see the ISS. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually witnessed it Very myself. Very clearly. Uh, uh, so now, unless they're going to try to throw some theory that the government spent ridiculous amounts of money just to put that up there to trick people, well, if that's the case, you might as well just put people up there. I think I think that's where people get confused, is the fact that you can see parts of a space station underwater mm-hmm. at this place, the, uh, the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which I think is in Texas, isn't it? Uh, I believe so. I think but even at that, there's plenty of video that says, yeah, this is underwater and we use it for training. Mm-hmm. And there are yeah. v- uh, pictures now that uh, I don't know if you've seen them. I might have to put them up on the uh, show notes. Uh, recently, Terry Verts took a GoPro camera up with him uh, <laughs> and he's actually taken some footage of, I think it was EVA 30 and 31. And you can clearly see the difference between him floating around in space to someone training underwater. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the underwater training facility is also very well lit. You know, I understand he's doing this for a school project, and that's fine. But just the fact that he even has the opportunity to, you know, that there are people out there who think this so that he can do this for a school project is just mind-blowing. I I hope some of the things that we said just now our thoughts on, on what is out there has helped um help with his project i hope so i mean that's we do aim to entertain as well as inform and hopefully we were able to somewhat inform they well, just can't hide those first two and this and the third one you can actually see the thing yeah there you go connor i'm as i say i hope these these have helped um and, and as we as i like to say we we do try to edutain <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Spamhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spamhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That looks like we have come to the end of another packed show. I'd like to thank Ian Hine from Dead Universe Comics and yes. uh, Gordon Ewan from the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society, which, is, as you heard in the clip, I had difficulty saying, <laughs> for, for allowing us to make the recordings at their events. Uh, once again, Richard Garriott for joining us in the podosphere. Oh, yes. And uh, young Connor for sending in his questions. And as always, John, it's, it's been a blast having you on board. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Once again, everyone out there, thanks for listening, and um, we'll speak to you again soon. Mm -hmm. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you all again soon. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.